If you look at dots, individual happenings, they look a certain way. But you start to connect them and you see the pattern. President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly have been cut down by assassin's bullets in downtown Dallas. A plane has crashed into one of the towers. Diana, Princess of Wales, has been killed in a car accident. Assassinations are not just made to happen. They have to be allowed to happen. What do you think happened with Kennedy? He was taken out for a number of reasons. One of them was that he wasn't keen on going into the full-blown Vietnam War. If you said to most people, it still is most people, how many buildings came down on 9-11? They'd say two. Go on the internet and you put in building seven collapse or whatever you will see the most obvious controlled demolition you'll ever see there's some people who think that they were drones oh absolutely oh god yes there were 84 cameras in and around the pentagon which we've never seen princess diana death you alluded to the fact that you thought she was murdered she knew literally and symbolically where the bodies were buried for a start and she was becoming bigger than the royal family and and i i go back to it she knew their secrets the police knew about savile they knew what he was doing but for some reason he wasn't nailed and he wasn't nailed because he was a procurer of children for the rich and famous and therefore his back was watched and he stayed in the inner circle of the British royal family all the way through almost to the end of his life the world is controlled by basically a spider's web the cement that holds this web together is paedophilia and satanism Welcome back to the True Jordy podcast. Today's guest is David Ike. Wow. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. We're there, fellas. Round of applause. I feel like we should. I've I've basically wanted to get David on the podcast ever since we started the podcast because I'm a bit of a a watcher of conspiracy documentaries, and you're one of the leading guys in the country, if not one of the biggest guys in the world. I think you're a. are termed a, con- a professional conspiracy theorist. Do you no. hate that it, title? No, that, a lot of people say that. No, no yeah, no. I am a I am a conspiracy researcher. Right. And where did where did this uh, theory idea come? Where up? did this theory mm. uh, theorist idea come from, which is now um, just parroted mm-hmm. as overwhelmingly a a label of dismissal? Oh, it's a conspiracy theorist. Where did it come from? It came from the CIA mm. um, in the nineteen sixties. Some very strange people, very weird people, were not buying the official story of the Kennedy assassination, which included a magic bullet, which um, went through several people and and out at crazy angles. They weren't buying that. They were really ridiculous people. Anyway, it started to get traction because the official story of the Kennedy assassination didn't make sense to lots of people, especially when someone's hit in the forehead as uh, there's a Bruder film taken by an onlooker showed, and he was supposed to have been shot by someone behind him. So U-turn bullets, is that what we're doing now? Anyway, it started to get traction with people, and the CIA wanted to shut it down. And, and the document actually exists. You can see it on the internet. <coughs> they uh, contacted major media organizations in America, 1967, and urged them to use the terms conspiracy theorist and conspiracy theory to discredit those that weren't buying the official story of the Kennedy assassination. And all these decades later, you've got people in the mainstream media in all its forms who who still using it as a form of dismissal and discrediting with no idea whatsoever that they are parroting a CIA operation to discredit people that weren't buying its lies, basically. Uh, This is one of the few times where... uh 
I could start a podcast and just literally, I, I think we could do 10 podcasts with you because you just know so much stuff, mate. It's mental. Out, out of interest, who do you think, uh, or what do you think happened with Kennedy? Because I, I don't know if I've ever heard you speak on that. Oh, uh, well, I mean, he, he, was, he was taken out for a number of reasons. One of them was that he wasn't keen on um, going into the full-blown um, Vietnam War. Yeah. And uh, his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, uh, was an asset of this cabal mm. that I've been um, exposing all these years. And the moment that Kennedy was shot, Johnson became president on the plane and then reversed all the things that this cabal wanted wow. reversed. What you had was the, the explosion of the Vietnam War and, and many other things. And Nixon did a, a hell of a lot after that uh, to keep fucking it up. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they wanted it. They wanted to stoke the fire. Mind you, have you ever seen that, the shooting, the footage? Yes. I mean, I mean you, what's some of the most famous footage of all time. No, but his, I mean, you can see everything. His brains are all over. Yeah. His wife yeah. climbing all over. The, his wife, by the way, though, very good looking woman, wasn't she? I'm sure that was part of the conspiracy theorist. Um, <laughs> isn't um, it, it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because uh, uh, I, I guess then you go back to, who, well, who did it? Who are the people who... Well, I've spent 30 years uncovering that and, and written book after book and after book. We've got a new about, book, by the way, for those wondering. The Trigger. The Trigger. Yeah. The, this, by Devin Icke. This is, um, this is about um, 9-11, uh, how it, what, a large part of how it was done. The fact the official story is absolute garbage. Mm. And uh, basically, the network that did it, and it weren't six, uh, 19 hijackers um, who were Islamic uh, fanatics. And uh, that fits perfectly in 30 years of work, because the same network that I've been uncovering for so many other things, including the Kennedy assassination, mm -hmm. uh, were those behind 9-11. So I know there's going to be so much detail in there that we, yeah. we could just go on and on. I've really what, just what been through it. There's so much so great detail. The official story, to my knowledge, is... Um, the steel structure was weakened uh, due to the fires caused by Sorry, the planes. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just losing yeah. the will to freaking yeah. live. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and it collapsed because of the weakened beams. Or yeah. What are your, if we were to say, what are your main problems with the official story? What, what, what do you think? Oh, I've got enormous problems. Um, <laughs> if, if you think of, um, you know, like a centipede, I've used this analogy this week a couple of times, and each of the legs is uh, an aspect of 9-11, part of the story, mm -hmm. part of the claim. Every single leg has got an Achilles heel, mm -hmm. something that shows that the official story can't be true. Mm -hmm. And we have um, uh, the, probably the most obvious Achilles heel is Building 7. You know about Building 7? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you may do, but enormous numbers of people worldwide don't. Yeah. For those who don't, Building 7 was the third yeah. building that came I mean, down that day. If you said to most people, it still is most people, um, how many buildings came down on 9-11? They'd say two. Yeah. In fact, there was a court case in New York where it was related to 9-11 and uh, the subject of Building 7 came up and the judge actually asked, what's Building 7, right? Wow. So Building 7 was a 47-story uh, steel frame building. A skyscraper, yeah. Uh, yeah, owned by Larry Silverstein, who owned it before he bought the lease, weeks before 9-11, mm -hmm. for the Twin Towers. And uh, if you go on the internet and you put in, uh, on YouTube, you put in uh, Building 7 Collapse or whatever, you will see the most obvious controlled demolition you'll ever see. 
you know where you see from time to time these buildings are uh, brought down. So the charges are in the building in specific uh, sequences so that when they go off, the building falls on its own footprint and don't bang into other buildings, right? And most, most people think that takes, that, that takes weeks to set yeah, up. Well, for- I'm, I'm going to come to that because that's very relevant to, to uh, the obvious lies that we've been told about Building 7. So what right. was the official story of Building 7? Well, wait for this. First of all, in the whole history of engineering and architecture and building uh, history, a steel frame building has never fallen before or since because of fire. And the official story is that this 47-story steel frame building fell because of an office furnishings fire. That's the official frickin' story. Now, um, the fact that it was a controlled demolition, uh, he didn't mean to say this. He got caught with its pants down as well as on fire. Came with an interview that uh, Larry Silverstein did. It was like a retrospective on PBS, Public Service Broadcasting in America, of 9-11. And he was asked about his, his memories of that day, September the 11th 2001 and he talks about building seven and he said this i quote him word for word in the book it's an extraordinary quote he said um well he said you know the fire commander came to me that afternoon because building seven didn't uh was not hit by uh, a plane and it fell at 5 20 in the afternoon and uh he said uh well the fire commander came to me and he he said you know we're struggling to uh cope with the fire in building seven and he said i said to him you know there's been such a tragic loss of life today. Um, let's just pull it. And we agreed to pull it. And, and then shortly afterwards, he said, we, uh, we watched the building come down. Right? Wow. Now, you've just hit on it straight away. Two things, first of all. Fire commanders, well, actually three. Let's start with number one. That fire commander in this mythical exchange has never, ever come forward and said, yeah, I had that conversation. No one's ever said... That, yeah, I had that conversation with him. And they have been asked. Number two um, is that uh, you um, don't pull buildings with fire departments. You pull them with professional controlled demolition experts. <clears throat> and three, point you made, you t- take weeks putting the charges in the right place mm for the building to fall on its own footprint. And here's Larry Silverstein with, well, barefaced cheek doesn't even begin to cut it, saying that they had this conversation and, and not long afterwards that afternoon the, the building came uh, down. But there's another thing. Um, the official investigation into 9-11, called the 9-11 Commission, um, first of all, Bush and Cheney, Uh, who were running the White House, actually Cheney was, not Bush, Um, they were forced kicking and screaming to even have an inquiry. Now, you've just had this monumental outrage on American soil. 3,000 people are, are, are dead. You would have surely the most painstaking investigation 
into what happened, who did it, so mm. it would never be able to happen again. They fought to have an inquiry at all. Then, when they were forced into it, they appointed Henry Kissinger mm-hmm. as the guy to lead it, which is, you know, I mean, it's it's just extraordinary. You couldn't think of anyone more appropriate. I mean, you know when Kissinger's lying because his lips are moving, right? And the, right the way through bloody history, his history, <clears throat> he's been a front man for this cabal and an insider of this cabal most of his adult bloody life. Anyway, people didn't buy that. Kissinger, and eventually he had to stand down. Kissinger just looks evil as well, though. Well, Kissinger had to stand down when he was pressured to reveal his client list Mm. of his company called Kissinger Associates. Mm. Now, if he did reveal his client list, then that would have opened a massive can of worms. Uh, So he stood down. Mm. And so they then put a guy in charge called Thomas Keane. But the key guy, this is where I'm going with this Building 7. The key guy was a a fellow called Philip Zellico. Philip Zellico was a Bush insider, Bush administration insider, wrote a book with uh, Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State at the time of uh, 9-11. And um, he was put in charge of the commission as executive director. And people on the inside and even mainstream journalists were saying Zellico's running the, the whole thing. In fact, it came out a year after the commission began that Zellico and someone else had written the headings and the subheadings and basically the outline of the final report before the commission had even met. Paint by numbers almost. Yeah, and where I'm going with this is that, of course, if you're uh, compiling a report explaining what happened on 9-11, you have a bloody big problem with Building 7. Because although the official story, literally, staggeringly, is that office furnishings fire brought it down, it's not credible. It's the speed in which it came oh, down, yeah. isn't it? It's, if, it? If this was engulfed in flames, like you see many buildings in the past have been, mm. and then it came down, I mean... Even then, it's steel. It's steel. It's steel. It's not fucking going anywhere. But anyway, the, the building seven. It wasn't pre- even that on fire that much. No, it wasn't. When the, you the, watch the video, well, the fire it, was out by the time yeah, it came down. It, 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 the barely. I mean, the twin towers at the top, obviously upwards. They, they were they were on fire, but even still, that's that's a debate in itself. Yeah, but, well, I can go on to that is, as well. But this building seven is. It looks fine. And then all of a sudden, 10 seconds, it's gone. The first two and a half seconds that building fell was free fall speed. And you can only have free fall speed when anything below has been removed before it gets there. So So no resistance, basically. It's like dropping an apple from the same height and it falls at the same speed. That's how controlled demolitions work. The lower part of the building is gone before the top part of the building is coming down. That's why it kind of turns to dust. Mm. Anyway, just to finish the point... Um, Zellico, um, who was running an operation literally to defend the official story and keep out anything that <laughs> challenged it, um, he had a problem with Building 7. What do I do? I can't explain it. And it's the most obvious controlled demolition. Uh, I quote in the book a series of demolition experts saying it's a controlled demolition. And uh, so the way he got around it is he never mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? A commission report, an official commission report into 9-11. Three buildings And one of the down. three buildings coming down isn't even freaking mentioned. Yeah. Why? Because 
it's an Achilles heel. And, and this is the point. If they lied through their teeth about Building 7, which they clearly did, mm-hmm. there's a, a great organization called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. As there are firefighters for 9-11 Truth and pilots for 9-11 Truth, these are organizations that were set up um, after the attacks to challenge these professionals in their field to challenge the different mm-hmm. aspects of the story, saying that couldn't have happened. Um, I'll give you a, a, a quick one. I just get into the Twin Towers. But I'll give you a quick one on, on pilots for 9-11 Truth and the stuff they've got out and other people have got out as well. Flight 77, which was supposed to have hit the Pentagon, the official story is the pilot was a guy called Annie Hanjour, right? Annie Hanjour was banned from hiring a one-engine plane six weeks before 9-11 because he was so incompetent and dangerous. Yeah, I've seen that. And uh, these pilots who've come together, some of the pilots in Pilots for 9-11 Truth actually flew those planes. Mm. They were American Airlines, United Airlines pilots. And they say that turn, that that spiral to hit the Pentagon, so they claim, Mm. they couldn't have done. The manoeuvring was that of the a, maneuver, very, yeah. a very advanced. And very what, advanced. What I yeah. understand is all of the pi- all of the people they they'd been going to some pilot school, and one of the guys who was at that <coughs> pilot school was like, "These guys were dog shit. Like they couldn't do shit." Dumb and Dumber <laughs> yeah. was one one uh, uh, flying instructor's um, mm. kind of uh, description of them. But on the two the twin towers, you know, we talk we just talked about um, free fall speed. Mm. Those two towers were one hundred and ten stories. They fell in free fall speed. Oh, 11 seconds, I think. Ten, but around that, a mean, yeah. mean figure's about 10, but who gives a second? Yeah. They came down. Now, what is the official story? That as the top fell, it pancaked mm. and knocked all the others down, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what happens with a pancake? It gets slower and it slower. It gets slower and slower. And, 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 and yet, the whole building, both buildings fell in free fall yeah. speed. So clearly, um, it, it was, and, and the other thing is that if you look at the, uh, the South Tower, the second one, the big fireball, mm. right? Most of the, um, the aviation fuel uh, fire, uh, the aviation fuel mm-hmm. has burned away in the explosion outside yeah. the building. And there was that other point, like, and I'm sure you're aware of this, I'm not telling you anything, but that uh, jet fuel doesn't burn to a certain temperature exactly. that would be required to melt the steel yeah, yeah. beams. And on a diagram I watched, there was a video uh, diagram of how it would have happened, the pancake theory. Yeah. And you see the, the, the one floor hits, the next floor hits, the next floor, but there's a column up the middle that is still standing yeah, yeah. on the diagram, and that is never explained no. The, the concrete why um, that went yeah the, uh, the concrete column or whatever it was at the middle because that's where you build those yeah, yeah. Um, but let's, let's let's just take that a step further none of that would matter um, in a proper investigation yeah because what you'd get um, are building experts explosive experts all these different kinds of experts relating to um, what happened and they would go into the rubble mm. They would look at the steel, they would look at the, um, the debris, and they would um, give you a bloody good idea why those buildings came down. Mm-hmm. So how did they get away with that? Um, the guy uh, running the whole 9-11 um, criminal investigation was called Michael Shirtoff, um, a real extreme ultra-Zionist who was the head of 
the criminal division of the Justice Department. He oversaw the criminal investigation. And he, he and his hierarchy agreed that in ridiculously quick time, all the rubble and the steel from the Twin Towers and Building 7 would be taken in trucks that were um, tracked, every one of them, by GPS. And if, um, I'll give you one example, one, one of the truck drivers took a half an hour extra for lunch and got fired. Right. Um, and the reason they said that they did all this was to, um, was because of the sensitive nature of the material they were carrying. Mm-hmm. Well, sensitive nature. On the other end, they were dumped in... Um, two scrapyards in New Jersey, immediately cut up, put onto uh, uh, ships and shipped to Asia to be smelted and to become someone's bloody fridge. And I I quote in the book uh, an article in the New York Times, uh, which just shows the contempt that this cabal has for those who died and those whose loved ones were left behind. It describes this comical, bizarre situation where you've got building experts and engineers at the scrapyards, and it describes how uh, these big grabbers were coming down, picking up stuff, and as the grabbers went away, these people running were in. running yeah. onto the uh, um, onto the you know the mound of of debris trying to see anything that, that could give them any clue about, you know, what happened. And then the, the grabber would come back and they'd run for their lives off it. This, this is what went on. This is a crime scene. It's a crime I, I imagine scene. police, like, just going and going. Oh, You've so got not, five seconds, lad, so to have a look. It's not only a crime scene, but it's a crime scene that they've shifted miles away from the original yeah. crimes. So it's like taking a murder scene wiping up the blood yeah. and then putting it somewhere else and going, go and investigate and, and that. And can I just, can I have one thing? Just, yeah, but, uh, there will be people, um, I know it is upsetting for some people, the subject of this, um, and you were saying the contempt with which a lot of yeah. people mm. treat the uh, victims of 9-11. You've dedicated the book I have. to the victims of 9-11. I just it was worth saying, because a lot of people go, it's disrespectful to yeah. discuss conspiracy theories surrounding 9-11 as well, just for those people. Well, I well, think well, the, well, the, the, the disrespect also, you look at the first responders who, I don't know if yeah. anyone's seen the clip from the guy, uh, there's a comedian who is speaking on behalf of the first responders recently right. in, in a courtroom. John Stewart, yeah. And he is lambasting the courtroom going, you have failed all, and there's fire doctors, nurses, yeah. police, uh, all of these first responders behind them, they've been treated like shit. They've been dying ever since yeah. because of what they breathed in. Mm. And George Bush told them it was safe to go back. Yeah, well, yeah, the, 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 the environment department of the government said it was safe to go back. I've dedicated the book not just to the, those who died and their loved ones left behind, who've been treated with absolute contempt, but also to all the millions that have been killed and maimed in the Middle East justified by that. Right. When we talk about this crime scene, some of the pictures that I've seen before are of the de- like the debris, and you see where these um, concrete beam, uh, sorry, the steel beams have been almost sheared, like sliced in yeah. oven. You can see where what looks like where the explosives would have gone off because they've they've just cut them so perfectly. It doesn't. It just you're looking at it thinking, how would that have happened in a fire? It, yeah. it doesn't make sense yeah. at all. Um, well, you know, uh, again, I quote in the book, uh, it took a year for this to come out. Um, 
But they were saying um, in that year that the fire crews only got to a certain level, not too high mm -hmm. in the towers, right? And then a year after it happened, um, tapes were released of conversations between fire officers and the ground. And these fire officers were right at the seat of the frickin' fire. Mm. Yeah. And they were talking about just little pockets of fire to, to deal with. So the, the idea... And then they also started saying, I heard a bomb go off. And I heard a f quite a few of them going, there's, yeah. there's, you, you haven't seen, there's, a, there's bombs in the building, I yeah. think a few of them said. Yeah, there's, a, a, there's a, quite a few people in there that I quote, um, both from Building 7 and the Twin Towers, who, independent of each other, describe bang, 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 uh, going off as mm -hmm. just before the towers came down. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, uh, it, I, I, but, you know, I, when, when people see what's in that book, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bloke from Leicester, right? Um, and I, you know, I do what I do. But if I can do that and take the official story absolutely apart in every aspect, where the hell have the BBC and CNN been in the last 18 years? Where have they been? Why is it that, uh, and I travel the world a lot, mm -hmm. why have I never, ever, anywhere in the world seen one mainstream media documentary mm -hmm. questioning the official story? Well, you, I, I wouldn't say predicted this, but you, you made claims, I think, in the early 2000s, uh, before this happened, maybe late 90s, I think it was 98, that a terror attack in a major US city would happen in order to... To, to push it on. Yeah. The, 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 it's the basically, 9-11 is an extreme example of a technique that I've been calling since the 1990s, um, problem, reaction, solution. Uh, it's a technique that's used on us all the time. You want to change the world in a certain way, and you want to push the world in a certain direction. You want to do certain things, which you know, if you just openly announce, this is what we're going to do, or we want to do, you'll get a pushback. People will go, what do you mean? What are we going to do that for? Well, what's the justification of that? Like regime change in a series of countries in the Middle East and invading Afghanistan, etc. Well, nobody, nobody ever wants to go to war. And I think there was a quote, wasn't Bush, it was one of his people who goes, something like a new Pearl Harbor. There was a quote yeah. that went around where we need a new Pearl yeah, Harbor. Yeah, yeah. I, I can give you chapter and verse on that. Yeah. And, and that alone is devastating to uh, the official story. But... Um, you know, if you um, if you look at um, that whole area of the um, the new Pearl Harbor, there's a sequence that you can pick up very clearly, which I'll get to in a second. But just to finish the thing on uh, problem, reaction, solution, you first of all, instead of just openly announcing it, and you know you're going to get pushback, you don't do that. You create a problem. It could be a terrorist attack, it could be a war, it could be a run on a currency, it could be a government collapse. Anything that will give you the opportunity to give the solution to the problem you're creating. Crucially, you, um, you name another villain as soon as you can. And bin Laden and Afghanistan were being named literally within an hour. That, that was amazing. Of, of, Looking back at of it, it, how quick how they quick. had been. It's like, well, if you knew this guy was such a fucking problem, yeah. why is he fucking able to do this sort yeah. of stuff? Um, and even, even Alex Jones, and I know Alex Jones is not like the bloke to be quoting because his name is not worth much at the moment, but he, there was footage of him going, 
the, he, he named Twin Towers. He said, you know, when surprises is attack, and we know you're going to use Bin Laden as the boogeyman. Yeah. Like he he called a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, it's an amazing thing that um, Bin Laden and Afghanistan were named by a guy called Ehud Barak, a mm. former Israeli prime minister. He actually had been Israeli prime minister up until early uh, 2001 on the BBC immediately after the attacks. He's naming bin Laden and he's, he's, he's basically calling for an invasion of mm. Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, these um, these things are all planned because you create the problem and you blame someone else for it. And you, you've got to get your villain in early. So so that villain then becomes the, the official story. It dominates who did it. And you're looking at stage two of problem, reaction, solution with a, a reaction from the public. What you want them in fear, outrage, and you want them to basically say, do something. This can't go on. What are they are going to do about it? And then you, who've covertly created the problem and got that reaction, then openly offer the solutions to the problems you've created. And if we go to what you mentioned there about a new Pearl Harbor, here's a sequence. Um, in 1979, the so-called father of Israeli intelligence, a man called Issa Harel, told an American journalist that um, he felt that uh, the Arab, Arab terrorists were going to target the biggest building in New York because um, it was a phallic symbol and that would, in psychological terms, help to break the spirit of America. In the same year of 1979, Benjamin Netanyahu um, started having conferences, one in 79, one in 1984, uh, which American officials and Father George Bush attended, in which he was calling for a war on terror and calling for the removal of Saddam Hussein um, in Iraq. In 1996, um, uh, uh, a man called uh, Richard Pearl, who was an ultra-Zionist close associate of Netanyahu, who was by then Prime Minister of Israel, he produced a report uh, called A Clean Break uh, for Netanyahu, in which he called for the removal of Saddam Hussein, targeting Syria, uh, targeting Iran, uh, and so on. And then in 1997... Um, an organization with Richard Pearl involved heavily uh, was created in America called the Project for the New American Century. This was an ultra-Zionist organization which um, was co-founded by two big-time Israel firsters and associates of, of Netanyahu called uh, William Crystal and Robert Kagan. In the Project for the New American Century in 1997, when it was formed and right up and across 9-11, was Dick Cheney, who at the time of 9-11 would be de facto president, officially vice president, mm -hmm. Donald Rumsfeld, who would be 9-11 defense secretary, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, who was 9-11 um, deputy defense secretary and the real power in the Pentagon, um, and uh, Dove Zakheim, who at the time of 9-11 was comptroller of the Pentagon in, in, in uh, charge of that entire budget. And there was another guy there in the project for the American century called John Bolton, uh, who has been until he got uh, got uh, um, thrown out this very week as we speak, uh, was was pushing uh, Trump into um, uh, targeting countries that this project in the American century uh, wanted targeting. So 
come back into the sequence to 1998, when this organization wrote to President Bill Clinton calling for an invasion of Iraq to remove Saddam Hussein. You see what these people wanted, right? Come forward again to September 2000, one year before 9-11. The Project for the New American Century produced a report calling for, and it was a, basically a mirror of the Clean Break report. And um, it was written by these characters I've just been talking about, including this Richard Pearl, who'd done the, the Clean Break for Netanyahu. And it called for American forces to fight and decisively win multiple theater wars to regime change in a series of countries. Iraq, Libya, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, North Korea, and others. And in this document, it says, this process of transformation, these regime changes, will necessarily be slow. And this is the quote, absent some catalyzing and catastrophic event like a new Pearl Harbor. That's where I heard it. Yeah. Right. And um, a few months later, a very few months later, the people that wrote that document, your Zakheims and your Cheneys and your Rumsfelds and your Wolfowitz and your Pearls, came to power in January 2001 with the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. And um, nine months later, America had what Bush called at the time our Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor of the 21st century, as a result of which, ever since, they've been ticking off this, this, well, this list. Well, Iraq didn't make no sense because, uh, officially, uh, they weren't even involved in 9-11 no, anyway. And the no. weapons of mass destruction were obviously proved to be a load of bollocks. Yeah. Um, just to put it into context, though, for maybe some younger people who've never been exposed to your work before, the idea that a government could allow this to happen to their own people is unbelievable or hard to get their heads around up. But this isn't this has been happening many times. To my to my, what I've researched anyway, I, I think Hitler was it the Reichstag building? Yeah, Reichstag building, yeah. Yeah, and then um actually some people actually say that Americans knew about Pearl Harbor before it happened. Oh absolutely they did. I I've, I've gone into that in um, in previous books and some people um uh have written whole Books about mm. Pearl Harbor alone. America was was itching to get into the war, yeah. from a government standpoint. But the people were like, "No, keep us the fuck yeah. out of this." I'll, I'll tell you very, very, very quickly the background to that. Um, Franklin Roosevelt won an election um, before America entered the Second World War, and his mantra was. I tell you, mothers and fathers of America, your boys are not going into that war in Europe. Mm -hmm. He knows they are. Mm -hmm. um, but he can't win by saying so. <laughs> but he knows they are. Yeah. So um, what they look for, and this is how problem-reaction-solution works, they create an excuse which gives them the excuse to do what they wanted to do anyway, but also puts them in the clear. Because after the Pearl Harbor attack yeah. by Japan, um, which was very clearly um, engineered. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was like, well, uh, you, you know I didn't want to go in that war in Europe, but we can't have this. Yeah. And, uh, and people going, yeah, well, I, I understand that, Franklin. Yeah, we've got to go. Yeah, problem, reaction, solution. That's so how from, it works. From that standpoint, if we're looking at 9-11, after all of the research you've done, and maybe we could do the Pentagon first, because there, there's a lot wrong with that as well. Like, 
Where's the footage? They had 80-odd cameras there. 80, 84, where, 85 cameras. Where's the remains of the plane as well? Yeah. Because if I'm right, thinking half of the plane just didn't even show up. Well, let me, let me just explain this. Um, you know, there is a question over, um, a massive question, I say absolutely justified, about whether a plane hit the Pentagon at all, mm. uh, for, for many of the reasons you've, you've already mentioned, plus a lot more. And, and, and the official reaction is, well, that's, uh, that's ridiculous. That's a conspiracy theory. Well, okay. There were 84 cameras in and around the Pentagon uh, filming that day, which I, I know and I saw in the book, the FBI came and took away that morning, mm-hmm. um, which we've never seen. If a plane hit the Pentagon, many of those cameras are going to have it on. So mm-hmm. just show them. But they, ne- they never, they never uh, uh, have. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is this. Do you know it's never been established? Isn't there a photograph or two photographs with... Oh, yeah, about five frames. Flash. Oh, yeah, it's a joke. And, and you're like, that doesn't look like a Far, plane. far distant. Yeah, it looks more like a missile. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. there's a very good chance it was a missile. Mm. It, either a missile or a bomb inside the building mm. because... Uh, well, God, I mean, we could talk forever about this. There's so many elements to <laughs> Sorry. it. You know the size of the Pentagon, right? Massive, massive building. Well, um, on the... Far side from where the Pentagon was said to be hit, that's where all the bigwigs were. Your Rumsfelds and your, your big generals, right? Now, if you're a... Uh, and by the way, if the plane had to come straight in, that's where it would have hit. Mm. But it had to do this spiral. And, and by doing the spiral and missing where the bigwigs were, yeah. and if you did any research on the internet, you knew where they were. No, the guy flying, it's like, nah, yeah. janitors. I know, let's that hit bit. The, yeah, I know. Let's, like, let's hit the cleaners room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need to do another circle, mate. You're going to hit the Rumsfelds. <laughs> We've got to turn yeah, this around again. A I'm, yeah. having a, I'm, mate, I'm having a mare here. Yeah. It comes around. Wait, wait for this. It comes around, they say, and it hits something called Wedge One. Wedge one just happened to be that part of the Pentagon that had just undergone massive reinforcement to protect the building from just such an attack. It's just insane. But like I was saying, um, do you know that they've never even established, and it's a doddle to do, that the planes that left the airports were the ones that hit the buildings? There's a lot of... There's a lot of talk about yeah because there was some people who said who seen the planes go into the building yeah. the actual twin towers yeah. who said they did not look like regular airlines they look like they military planes different. they look yeah. different but I mean that's just speculation well what it, Does the, is that is the footage of nine eleven uh, there's some people who think that they were drones I don't know they have, were, have you uh, covered that I absolutely I absolutely I, I I've been sat I've been saying for, for long long time now many many years going way back that they were they were drones. And I'll, I'll give you a story in a second, which will show that that was planned in 1962, never mind uh, 2001. But what I was going to say with this thing is that um, every single plane crash in the world, no matter what it is, um, they establish that the plane is the one they think it is. Yeah. And they do it this way. Um, all plane parts have a serial number. And there are some called uh, time uh, change parts which are changed regularly even if there's nothing wrong with them they have to be changed and they all have serial numbers mm-hmm. and every time a part is put on a plane the maintenance log logs the serial number so what the plane investigators do every time not when there's an R in the month every time is they take the maintenance logs and they look at the parts that have been found and they say yep they match this is the this is definitely the plane we think it is 
That was not done on 9-11 on any of the four planes. And someone put in a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI to reveal the documentation to show that that's been done. Mm -hmm. And the FBI came back and said the uh, documentation doesn't exist because it was not done. And they said it wasn't done because the identity of the planes was never in doubt. Now, if people that read the book, they'll, say, you, they'll see that the identity of the planes was massively, massively in doubt. So, again, just like the cameras... Okay. Uh, what about black boxes, David? Sorry to interrupt Yeah, you. well, the black boxes have serial numbers. Uh-huh. Were, they, were they recovered? Some of them were, some of them weren't. None were recovered from the Twin Towers, so they claim, although some, some people that, that were, you know, working in the rubble say they were found. And what about the people who rang, so there was people on the planes who were ringing their relatives? That was one thing I always was, like, confused about, like... What happened to those people, when, when I try and use my phone on a yeah. plane, I can't use it. Oh, uh, well, depends on the atmosphere. I, yeah. No, but I, I, I'm, I'm not disputing... This isn't me coming from a conspiracy angle no. or anything. It, it, I just always thought, well... Because recently they apparently brought new technology and yeah. it's going to allow us to ring people on a plane. I'm yeah. like, well, that would just be really annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the, yeah, but let, let me let me pick up that point before it disappears. Um, the um, stories of the calls from the plane are extremely in doubt, uh, especially when you're looking at the technology of 2001 mm. in terms of cell phones. And yeah. this is this is what happened. I, Before I, 4G. Everything right? I'm saying here, by the way, is all supported by factual detail in the book. Um, when the story first broke, the basically FBI media story mm. was that all these kind of um, phone calls were made from cell phones, from the planes, right? Then it was pointed out, something you just mentioned, hold on a minute, you can't, you can't make cell phone calls from that, um, from that altitude, altitude, right? Um, and so what happened then is the FBI changed the story, and started saying, no, they, they came from um, seatback phones known as air phones, which they used to have in those days. I used one on uh, one occasion about the same time, actually. Um, and they were in the seatbacks and you, they had a wire on and you pulled them out and you, you used a credit card and you could call the ground. They're called air phones. They're run by a company called Verizon. Um, and so suddenly these cell phones became air phones. But two things um, to that. First of all... Um, a lady called Barbara Olson, who was an InVision contributor to CNN, she was married to the Bush administration solicitor general called Ted Olson. And the official story is she was on Flight 77 and she made two phone calls to her husband at the Justice Department um, and, they, and told him what was going on on the plane. It's from those phone calls, alleged phone calls, that the whole idea of the box cutters came from. That's where they came from. Mm-hmm. And the, the only evidence if you can call it evidence, that Flight 77 turned around in the Midwest and came back, and it wasn't another plane, was the Olsen calls. Oh, really? Those Olsen calls have no supporting documentation, either at uh, her end or the Justice Department's end, that they were ever made. The one other thing, sorry to interrupt you, that to my knowledge, was there any recordings of the paths that the plane took or anything? Is there any proof like that? I mean, there are recordings of where like, planes came well, yeah, 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 but uh, again, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a long story, but in, in the book, I, I go through all this background about, you know, what, what was actually uh, going on or could have been going on. But here's the point. The official story was that, first of all, was that Barbara Olsen called her husband on a cell phone 
and then you uh, look at the um, flight data recorder and and it impossible so the story changed and that's what you find with the the 911 story which i've been tracking literally since the day it happened i brought out the first book on it in 2002 um when they're caught out, the story changes. So suddenly it became, no, she called on an air phone. That's how she did it. Right. Well, as I quote from the American Airlines, because it was an American Airlines 757, Flight 77, as I quote from the American Airlines um, manual and uh, from uh, also pilots and cabin staff of the time, the air phones had been taken out of American 757s by the time of 9-11. So there were no freaking air phones. They Sometimes could used, the right. telephone calls will be, will be false. false. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. here's, an, here's another one. As there was a, a passenger on um, Flight 93 called Tom Burnett. And he called his wife. And his wife saw his cell phone number come up on her phone. Mm. So he's called her on his cell phone. Um, and then, according to the flight data recorder... When he called her, the plane was flying at between 34,000 and 40,000 feet. So the story changed. And in the official explanation, the FBI said he called on an air phone, which was still in United Airlines planes, which 93 was. Got the call log. But his cell phone number came up. Another thing, a couple of the uh, uh, callers... Um, one particular guy called Todd Beamer, he was the let's roll guy. And there's great doubt about whether he actually said Is that. The, uh, said that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it sounds great flight, for a movie type. Yeah. Was flight that 93. on flight 93? 93. All right, I'd, I'd be interested in what, what you say about this. He didn't call his wife, although he could have done, because uh, the operator offered to put him through. But he, he stayed on the line to this operator, a lady called Lisa Jefferson, a Verizon airphone operator, for a long, long time. And she said, first of all, it was absolutely amazing because air phone calls were going down all around me. It was chaos because the, the uh, connections were breaking down everywhere. But his never broke down. Something else, because she's a, an, a, a, an air phone expert, works it all the time. She said um, that um, when the line breaks, there's a squealing sound, right? Well, that phone connection between her and Todd Beamer, uh, as is claimed, um, continued long, long, long after the plane was supposed to have crashed. And another call, some parents taking a call from from, uh, uh, their their relative, the same thing happened. The call continued after the plane was supposed to have crashed. And of course, the air phones get their power from the power of the plane. So the plane crashes, it's all down. The other thing, Todd Beamer's cell phone had 19 outgoing calls made on it after that plane was supposed to have crashed. I mean, all over the place, there are these extraordinary things that cannot be explained. And none of it was explored in the 9-11 Commission report because they can't explain it. So what are are we then saying happened to those people that got on those planes? Because they were, they're all real people, aren't they? Yeah. Let me, um, let let me give you a... um, uh, some background to something called Operation Northwoods. And because uh, Operation Northwoods was basically um, a version of 9-11 in 1962. And then you can, you can see uh, the, the, the themes, which includes passengers. In 1962, during the Kennedy assassination, um, there was a, a, a plan made 
to discredit Castro and Cuba to justify an invasion. Mm. Notice the, the common theme. And um, it was called Operation Northwoods. And this is not me theorizing and pulling out the ether. I'm quoting now the official American archive. And in the summer of um, 2001, a former ABC investigative producer called James Bamford came out with a book called Body of Secrets. It was, it was an investigation into the National Security Agency in America, the NSA. And in that research, he came across this, these documents in the archive, Operation Northwoods. And it was a plan. Uh, and in the end, when Kennedy found out about it, apparently he said, you must be joking. And it, it wasn't played out, but it was all planned to be played out. And there was a guy who was head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the, the uniform level of the military in the Pentagon, called Lemnitzer. And he was orchestrating it all. And this is what it says in these documents. The plan was to um, stage terrorist bomb and other attacks in major American cities, New York, Miami, two of those that are named, to um, have American military forces covertly sh uh, um, sink American shipping and to blame the attacks on Castro and Cuba to justify an invasion of Cuba. Now, this is the, this is the uh, big connection to 9-11, one of the things they planned, and it's described in detail in the documents, was that they were going to um, pick a plane flying a commercial route from an East Coast American uh, airport whose natural route took it over at very high altitude, obviously, um, Cuban airspace. And they were going to um, put on the plane... Passengers, and this is a quote from the, uh, the document, with carefully um, selected aliases. And the plane was going to fly down across Florida, going down towards Cuba. <coughs> and when it uh, got into Florida, another plane, the same type, painted in the same airline colors, a drone controlled from the ground we're talking 1962 what mm. technology did they have in 2001 was going to take off from the eglin air force base it was going to go up close to the original plane so that basically the blips became one and then the plane that left the airport with the carefully selected alias passengers was going to be landed at eglin air force base the drone was going to go on the 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 scheduled route and it was going to be blown up by radio signal over Cuba. And it even says in the document, and we will wait for the international aviation uh, authorities to tell us what has happened to obviously um, keep, uh, keep up the idea that it, we had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So that's what they planned in 1962. This is all fact. This, is, yeah. this is in the American yeah. official Story. archive. Um, uh, Operation Northwoods. I've caught this before as well because it does add a lot of weight to what you're saying about 9-11. Yeah. So what was the plan with those people who were on the plane then? That uh, it wasn't said what happened to them afterwards. But the point is, mm -hmm. um, if the original passengers were on these planes, and, and I'll tell you something else that happened uh, and, and how they could lose them in a second. Um, if they um, were on those planes, well, do you think they want them around to tell their story? Of course not. 
Right. right. So it's, it's, it's a small but, price to pay. But, right? but let me let me just say this: you 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 will have come across this, but the vast majority of people will will not have done. On nine eleven, on that day of all days, there was what was described as an unprecedented number of war games going on in the skies where the 9-11 hijacks were going Just explain what war games are, dude. Mm. Practice scenarios where the military and the Air Force are practicing Mm -hmm. what they would do in the case of hijackings and threats to America from the sky. There was a long list of them. I list them in, in the book, a long list of them. And never before have so many been concentrated at the same time, 9-11. One of the, one of the scenarios they were playing out while these hijacks were going on was of a plane hitting the National Reconnaissance Office in, um, in Washington, D.C. And by the way, when they're playing out these war games, they employ actors and actresses to play out roles for instance in the national reconnaissance scenario there were there were smoke bombs going off to simulate the, the building being hit um, there were people um, uh, in on the staff that had scripts to follow in reaction to it and there were people in the building given phone calls to make with scripts to, and what's to, interesting, what's interesting, just going back to the phone calls briefly, is the phenomenal common theme from people at the other end of the phone calls. That people, the people were incredibly calm. They couldn't believe it. They didn't hear um, uh, any uh, kerfuffle going off, off the background. Often they didn't really hear plane noises. Um, and and, and as, as one um, wife of a passenger said, he talked to me describing that these 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 hijackers were doing this that and the other. He talked to me as if as if he was calling me from the office at work. It, it, it just mm. every it, if you have one like that or two, fair enough. But there was a stream of them, um, and so these war games were going on. Now on the uh, the, the the reaction system to hijackings or attacks from the air in America is orchestrated by an organization called NORAD. Um, a, a Air Force organization and the reaction um, center with regard to 9-11 was a place called Rome in New York State. Um, and I uh, published some of the, um, you know, the, the record of the tapes of, the, of, of what was going on and what they were saying. And when the first reports came in of the planes being hijacked, they were saying, well, well one of them said, well, I, I thought the... Um, the war games must have started early, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they were asking, is this real or is this scenario? Completely confused them. But there's something else. On their screens and on the screens of air traffic controllers mm-hmm. were simulated planes that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a system they call Sim Over Live. So you've got your live planes mm-hmm. and then you've got your simulated planes. Right. And... and it was done on purpose to create total confusion. In 1999, uh, a golfer called Payne Stewart uh, took off in a private plane with some friends um, heading to Dallas. And when they got to a certain height, there was a decompression problem and everyone kind of conked out. So the plane's flying on its own. Everyone's unconscious. 
Within no time, the air traffic controller has contacted NORAD, which is absolutely the regulations. If you think there's any problem, contact NORAD. That's in the regulations. NORAD has immediately uh, scrambled planes. They've, they're going alongside it. Then other planes come up as it goes through. And what they're doing is they're seeing if there's any life in the plane, inside the plane. But they're also making sure that when this plane runs out of fuel, if it's going to fall on a civilian area or, or, a, or a built up area, a populated area, they're going to take it out. Mm. And that happened with Payne Stewart's private jet. Very well documented. The uh, chiefs of staff in the Pentagon, as the media reported, were tracking the plane all the way through. This is the golfer's plane. On 9-11, in a period of two hours, there was not one reaction from the American Air Force military that made any difference whatsoever uh, because there was a stand down. Um, Ten miles down the road from the Pentagon is the Andrews Air Force Base. This is where Air Force One comes in out. All the foreign leaders come in and out. That's immensely well defended. But um, on 9-11, they didn't scramble planes from uh, 10 miles down the road at Andrews. They scrambled them from the Langley Air Force Base, 150, uh, 130 miles away. Mm. For New York, they scrambled them from Cape Cod, 153 miles away. And the whole common theme was, ooh, didn't get there quite in time. In fact, in fact, the, when the planes were scrambled from the Langley base, supposedly for Flight 77, but it turned out to be uh, uh, something else, actually, they never, the pilots, the two pilots said they never told us what we were being scrambled for. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget, by that time, the Twin Towers uh, uh, have been hit. So what they thought, they said, is that I'm being scrambled, as per Cold War scenario, mm. from a, for an attack from the Atlantic. So here's Washington, here's Langley. They went out into the Atlantic right. before turning around and coming back. And, and of course, the Pentagon was hit before they, they got there. And, and the moment, and this is a big theme in 9-11, until the Pentagon was hit. Once the Pentagon was it, some, some of the normal reaction things started to happen, but not until. And there's another... And by that time, most of it had gone yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's another common theme, which is people uh, lying about what they were doing before the Pentagon was hit, which gave them a cover story for why they were not able to react. Mm -hmm. And once the Pentagon was hit, as the mainstream media reported at the time, they scrambled planes mm -hmm. from Andrews, 10 miles down the road, to protect the skies above Washington. Another thing, uh, Washington, and many tenants say the World Trade Center too, is within a no-fly zone called P-56, and it's basically based around the Washington Monument, and, and there's an inner section, there's an, a middle section, there's an outer section, apparently. And I quote in the book a former um, U.S. Defense Secretary, Caspar Weinberger, who was asked about the no-fly zone. And he said, well, this is how it works. He said, Washington is ringed with air bases. Among them is Andrews Air Force Base. And if any plane goes in to the no-fly zone without the code that gives it permission to fly there, then it's taken out. Right? I quote insiders of the Pentagon who worked at the Pentagon. Um, and this is obvious anyway, describing how the Pentagon is um, defended by ground-to-air missiles. I mean, it would be, wouldn't it? Mm. It's the home of the American military. 
So that means basically that they're ready to go yeah. straight yeah. away. Yeah, go inside, you're down. Where were they on 9-11? Mm. Um, and, and I contacted, because when I was writing my first book, um, Alice in Wonderland and the World Trade Center disaster, um, I was in contact with the FBI, with um, the Federal Aviation Administration and, uh, and NORAD, all of them. And um, I asked them, who polices the no-fly zone over Washington then? And um, they never gave me an answer of, of, of how it's done. Um, because if they had have done, then a whole can of worms opens. So where, we, where was that reaction system on 9-11? Because, you know, you, you, what's the point of a no-fly zone if it's not defended? You know? And, and so... If you are highly professional hijackers, which is what we're supposed to believe, you can go on the Internet and you can find this stuff out. You can find the reaction times. Just just follow the Payne Stewart story. And yet Flight 77, we are asked to believe, was flown 40 minutes out into the Midwest and then turned around and flown back at no po- 80 minutes. It was in the air 40 minutes after it was known to be, quote, hijacked. And there was no response from the American military that is normally up there in no time. 125 times in the previous year, there were questions about planes. Boom, they're up there. But not on 9-11 because it was, um, uh, it was a stand down. Because there was a guy called Leroy Fletcher Prouty. He wrote books on the Kennedy assassination. He was a big time intelligence military government insider. Um, in fact, one of the characters in the movie JFK was apparently based on him. He died in, in, just before 9-11, actually. And um, he, he was describing uh, assassinations. But, of course, this fits perfectly as well. And he said, if you want to know who, who um, was involved in an assassination, look who had, the, who had the power and used it to remove the normal security um, was that good fellas, isn't it? Yeah. Right. I'm the commandant. Yeah. <laughs> like- Re- removing the, the normal... Uh, uh, security systems because as he pointed out assassinations i in like 9 11 too don't just are not just made to happen they have to be allowed to happen because um otherwise the normal security responses would stop them happening mm. so you have to stand them down that sort of brings me on to a question because we got so much i want to talk to you about so to, to sort of to cap off 9-11 in a, in a way because you've done so much in this book and people can get it if they want to really get every detail but when you say allowed to happen um, are we saying because there, there was a huge 9-11 was an inside job movement yeah. for a while after that I think there's a difference between being an inside job and being allowed to happen as some people speculate that um, Pearl Harbor was allowed to happen yeah. where do you sit on all, all of the above it was both made to happen and allowed to happen I I, I Name the the people involved in making it happen and allowing it mm-hmm. to happen. Did you have a problem with with uh, getting those names in the book at all or anything like that? Was that no? I published my own books, right, and there was. But I mean, in terms of people threatening legal action, those well, kind no, of things. Nobody ever does with you. The, 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 the point the point is this: they they have they spent, and I I document this in the book as well. They've spent eighteen years making sure this never gets to court. Mm. They don't want an open court in which this stuff. Um, can be uh, right. openly um, uh, 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 kind of put in the public arena. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, I show how the judges were specifically, and they, they all have a connection, um, 
were appointed to stop the families. You see, the families were offered compensation, but the compensation came with the rider. You'll get the money, but, but you agree in taking the money. You don't take any civil action. Well, around 100 families said, sod that for a game of soldiers. We want our day in court and, 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 and let's have the evidence out. And they, there was a particular judge. It was called Alvin um, Hellerstein. And he has connections to all these other people um, who uh, ran what was described as a war of attrition, um, making it harder and harder for them to get to court. And the last one of the nearly 100 uh, pulled in uh, 2011. And the New York Times ran a story which said that a decision by Hellerstein on the litigation has now made it uh, impossible for these people to win. So they pulled and taken the conversation. So mm -hmm. they kept it all um, out of court. Another quick thing on 9-11 uh, and the, uh, the question is that um, whenever there's a hijack, um, the first thing that pilots are told to do they punch in a four-digit code. It literally takes that long, right? Every time. And then on the ground, they know there's a hijack, mm. right? Not one of those four planes put in the, the hijack code. Do you know what I always found mm. really strange as well is if, if the official story was true, there was one strange lie that was told by George Bush. And he goes, um, when I seen that first plane go in, I thought exactly. a terrible pilot. Yeah, uh, and he goes, but then the second plane goes in, and I knew like he, he actually. But then yeah. he was acting as if on the day yeah. he, he watched it. the first plane go in, and then the second plane yeah. go in. Well, Fahrenheit nine eleven says no, but nobody. We didn't have any footage no. of the first plane going in until a late until later. The second plane was videoed by everyone because there was obviously cameras by that time on the twin towers. And in my head, I'm like. Well, why are you fucking lying then? Well, wait, he was in the classroom, wasn't he? There's footage yeah, of uh, on Fahrenheit 9 11. The kids, yeah, the point very was, sweet president, but the, really. But the point, so he, he obviously wasn't watching any fucking TV when no, the first wasn't. plane went in. But, the, to, but to lie about it just makes you look even more guilty. I'll tell you a story matter. about that. I'm, I'm in America at the time, right after 9 11, um, uh, very shortly after 9 11, and I'm in a bar, you know, as you are, and I'm watching CNN on the bar television, and, and they're running a live town meeting. Which, which in American terms is basically a public meeting, as we would call it. And um, Bush is answering questions from the audience, all very carefully placed questions, of course. And this kid stood up. His name was Jordan. And he asked him, um, uh, Bush, what, uh, what he did that day. What happened? What was he doing that day? And he said, well, Jordan, he said, I knew I was the commander in chief and I had to act. Well, he didn't, did he, really? <laughs> I mean, uh, they kept him out. Well, the he way. put his book down. Yeah, so credit to him. Yeah, yeah. They, well, he they didn't the first the time. But yeah. then I'm watching this live on this this CNN telly in the bar, and he he then tells that story. He said just before he went into the class classroom to read a, a story about a pet goat, um, he saw on a television in a back room at the school in Florida the first plane hit. And he said, what a terrible pilot, right? Mm. And then he goes into the classroom. And then Andrew Card, his chief of staff, came in on the famous pictures mm -hmm. and, and said, the second plane's hit. So he's talking about the first plane. And as you rightly say, there was no live footage of the first plane. That was caught by a, a camera crew doing a documentary on, um, on the fire department. It a, a, took a couple of days. Yeah, to come out or absolutely it did. And, and so what I'm doing... The next morning, 
I'm, I'm scanning the papers and I'm, I'm watching the news in America and I'm waiting for someone to say, what was he talking about? Nothing. And I thought, did I hear it right? And then about two weeks, three weeks later, a visitor to my website in Belgium sent me a link to the official White House, you know, government uh, archive thing in which they had the entire transcript of that town meeting on the official. And, and there it was. He said it. Mm. And, and, and just, ask, just ask ourselves, we have a, a media peopled by people that claim to be journalists and they didn't pick up, as you picked it up. So blatantly bloody obvious. It's ridiculous. Mm. But what would have happened to them if they'd have questioned it? You know, because, Imagine John went, you're talking shit, yeah. George. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of want to talk to you about the start, the, okay. the start of the journey, because okay. 9-11 is important. But for you, a lot of people won't know how this all happened for you. Uh, you were a, a footballer, Coventry City goalkeeper. Uh, um, you had to stop your career early for the arthritis. And uh, you ended up being a BBC reporter. Right. And at some point, I, and I don't The world know how, went very weird. Well, mm. yeah, at some point you were like, fuck this, like, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore BBC Sport does that to people I mean BBC <laughs> BBC, Mark, God bless Mark Lawrence do you know uh, what I mean but Poor yeah guy. but you know and you were you're a figure of ridicule when oh, you massive. first when you first started doing this and a lot of my respect for you comes from going through all that because whether people agree with you or don't agree with everything you say you fucking you faced the, the, the shit that you got and you stood up for what you think and what you believe in and you didn't care what people said no can you sort of de- uh, describe what that was like to go through? Because you weren't a young guy when that sort of yeah. Came. There is still the interview on YouTube, by the way. The, the first interview, and a lot of people go back. So the, to, so the, so the interview yeah. was the yeah. Wogan interview. interview but, yeah. but but I mean more like what was it like going through um, everyone laughing and and, well, and, and sticking well, to it? Yeah, the, the 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 story about how it all came about is 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 long, and I've told it before. Um, mm. I, I I I had some incredibly what you might call paranormal they're not para they're actually normal but they're paranormal compared with the human perception of normal which is very different to what is normal um and uh so i um i i I, it was like something happened to me and like i said it's a long story about it built up you imagine that you're living your life and you're living your life in a bubble and within that bubble is your reality and then someone comes along and without any warning pops the bubble and suddenly information concepts are pouring into your conscious mind um in a in a way that's so massive it's like pressing too many keys on a computer um the computer freezes i can't process this information it's too much and that was like it for me and for three months um in um early 91 if you'd have asked me my name i'd have i'd have have checked because I had this bombardment of information and concepts and all these things that were happening. And then as eventually a computer goes and freezes and everything comes come back, after three months, and of course the Wogan show was right in the middle of that, mm-hmm. the computer unfroze. And people were saying to me, I thought you'd gone mad, you're the same David. I knew, I've always known I, I appeared to be, but I wasn't. Uh, I was the same, I, basically I am now, but... I saw the world completely differently. I, I could see how dots connected instead of how things seemed to be random and apart from everything else. And my whole, the whole thing uh, uh, changed. But, you know, I have this phrase I've used in one or two of the books. 
Life tends to give you your greatest gift brilliantly disguised as your worst nightmare. <laughs> and when um, I look back at that time, because of the Wogan show and all that stuff, I got the most extraordinary historic levels of ridicule. I couldn't walk down a street in Britain without Yeah, I don't think people at. nowadays could quite no. grasp that, but it's like trending on Twitter. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah. But, but weirdly. What a gift. And, and, and uh, so um, I couldn't go into a bar. I, 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 um, a, a comedian only had to say my name. No joke necessary. And, and they got a laugh. Um, and you'd think that was a nightmare. And, mm. and, and it, it wasn't nice to experience. But you know what, mate? It set me free. It set me free of the prison. I know a lot of young people watch this and mm -hmm. uh, 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 this podcast, and I know a, a lot of young people get really screwed up, even to the point of suicide, because of what's said about them on social media mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Well, most people live in a prison called fearing what other people think. And when you fear or you're concerned about what other people think, you're not you anymore. You are what you are expected to be by those you don't want abuse or criticism or ridicule from. So you conform to the norm um, so that you, 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 you're not called crazy. You're not called, you're not laughed at in the street or laughed at on social media and all that stuff. And, and you have gone. You're now a construct of someone else's version of what you should be. Um, and m most people are not saying what they really believe. They're not living their life as they really want to live it because they fear what will other people think? What will the people at work think? The people down the bar? What will my mother say? And all this stuff. But when you are faced with the scale of ridicule that I went through, um, you've got a choice. You can end up in the corner, shaking, or, and, or just withdraw from the world, or you can come out uh, honed in the fire. And, and not really honed in the fire. It's basically I know exactly what you mean. not becoming something so much as letting go what was imprisoning you before, which is the fear of what other people think. So when people ask me a question... I don't go through mental gymnastics. How do I put this in a way these people will think I'm okay or credible or sensible or intelligent or something or won't think I'm mad? I just say what I feel. And, and if people, you know, don't like it, well, they can do the other thing. That's quite fine with me. And it set me free. And, and so, you know, I get in enormous abuse on, on the Internet stuff as well as enormous support now. Um, but it goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't affect me because what I would say to, you know, young people that are affected by this, you're the one with the power. The power is not with the abuser. It's with the receiver in how they receive the abuse. Mm -hmm. And you can um, you can say um, you can fall apart because they're saying this stuff about me. And that's a, a reaction to it that's going to destroy you. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, I don't give a fuck. It's I, weird. I, I would say to these kids, just very quickly, you cannot, you cannot underestimate, or no, sorry, overestimate. You cannot overestimate the power of not giving a shit. Because people are kept in line 
They're kept in line in what they say, what they do, by giving a shit. You know, people that that, that uh, get upset by what people say about them online do so because they give a shit. People um, won't expose this death cult, which it is in the end. They're, they're freaking evil. They're, I mean, they make psychopaths look like, looking, you know, Mary Poppins, these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but they won't expose them because they fear the consequences of exposing them. I don't give a shit. And therefore, that's why that book's like that. And, and, and other people wouldn't write it because they think, well, what are the consequences of me writing this? And, and consequences, another uh, uh, prison that people live in, instead of doing what they feel to be right and what they know to be right and just doing it, because I, you know, people say, oh, dear, what do you think the consequences of writing that book were going to be? I don't, I don't give a shit. Because if I, if, if I consider consequences of doing something that I believe to be right, I'm actually considering compromising doing what I believe to be right because I fear consequences for me. No, you do what you believe to be right. Consequences are a prison because if you're all the time considering consequences, you'll always persuade yourself there's a very good reason not to do what you believe to be right because the consequences uh, seem t- uh, too much uh, for you to, uh, to, to accept. A lot of people never, never achieve their full potential because they're worrying about what everyone else is going to fucking say. Absolutely. And I went through something so not sad. the same as what you went through, but I've had a few people laughing and joking about me recently, and it's like one of the best things that's ever happened. It was like, because it, it's a one thing to not give a fuck. Yeah, it's another thing to really be tested. Yeah, exactly. On how little of a fuck you get. Yeah, exactly. And when everyone's laughing at your point, I saying shit about you, then you really have to fucking prove it. Then yeah. and not many people can. Yeah. And weirdly, I think everyone in their life, at one point or another, would be benefiting from that, like yeah. getting that experience, because it just makes you be yeah. the best person you can be. I get, I get, I get, I get this abuse thrown at me and this ridicule, and I'm mm. like, thanks for sharing that with me. Have a nice day. Mm. Can't give a fuck. Yeah. You know, and and because uh, you don't have to, you don't have to be affected by other people. You can choose not. But that's to when be. you get your mental strength from within you, yeah. and not from what other people think of you and tell you exactly. you are. Exactly. That's when abuse and praise just become the same. Become the same thing. thing. What, and that's that poem, that Rudyard Kipling. Yeah, Rudyard Kipling. You treat yeah. those fucking uh, exactly. two imposters just the same. That's exactly what they he's are. Twin imposters. They are twin imposters. You know, you can you, you 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 can tell me I'm God's gift to the world, and you can tell me I'm a you know a, a complete idiot and arsehole, and I'll receive both in the same way. We do live in a time where there aren't many solutions offered for that. And some people say you're a harbinger of doom or whatever, you know, the kind of guy who just... And I complete... And I actually, hearing what you just said then, and I'm not accusing you of that, um, I see now why you feel you can say those things. But I guess the interesting side to that for me is we are debasing a lot of people... where a lot of people derive their happiness from, which would be the idea of a family, which is responsibility towards others, and the idea of a, a, a collective society, yeah. which is responsibility towards others. And so there has to be an element of giving a shit for other people. But I am often left with a bit of a... not an empty feeling, because I, I, I find you very compelling, but quite um, quite a... well, what's the point then? Sort of feeling after no, I no, hear no, I mean, a lot of what you say. No, Do you know no, what I mean? No, no, it's. Uh, I mean, and I don't mean that to get at you. No, I'm just no, one of one of one of the things. One of the major areas that I write about is the nature of reality and how our perceptions become our experience. Mm. Um, so, 
if you go into that level, I write enormous amount and talk enormous amount about solutions mm. um, because a few people control the human race and the direction of the human race because the human race has given its power to those people. They've given its power away. People are giving the consciously or unconsciously, or yeah. both. You know, they're giving the, the, their power away to internet trolls. I mean, I, I, I said the other day on, uh, on, on the internet, it, it's not you that needs the help; it's the trolls. Yeah. You know, I mean, so do you, what do you think of this troll that said this about? Well, they're horrible. So what do you let them affect you for then? Just don't, don't, don't let them in. But you know, you need uh, to get someone to run your social media. Yeah. It's done wonders for me. I've never even seen a tweet for months. Yeah, I know. Although it's fucking, it's fucking debilitating <laughs> for me Bold, and Geo. On the other hand, is sick of his fucking. Life. Yeah, we take shifts. But, um, what, but, but I mean, the point about not giving a shit. I mean, let me put that into context. Uh, I write that book, and I've taken the shit I've taken over the last thirty years because I give a shit, give a shit about other people, about yeah. the world and the way it's going, and the, what what the the world that my uh, grandchildren and children are going to live in if we don't sort this out, and everybody else's children and grandchildren. And did you know? That's not that's not 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 necessarily what I'm saying in that. Yeah, so yeah, so uh, yeah, but but what I'm saying about not giving a shit is being affected by what people say and do with regard to you and when you say when i said i don't give a shit i, I don't mean I, i'll just shut up I'm, I'm not interested i'm not listening no no when i'm not talking I, I spend most of my life listening um so i do listen to people and sometimes you go you know that's bloody valid that is well of course you, most right. of this book is yeah. about listening to other people yeah, yeah. so so you do that what when i what, what, what i'm talking about is a specific area of not giving a shit which is um from a having, mental health. having you affected yeah, by from what a mental people, health point of view yeah, there's only so much we can take on board from other people I feel like there's a limit yeah. where you can take people's opinions but when you know someone's just there to fucking hurt you you've yeah. got to just be like alright mate uh, if you're giving cr- constructive criticism exactly. that's one thing that's different one thing you'd mentioned there sorry to change the subject again uh, is children and you were one of the first people a long time ago to say that there was an upper echelon pedo ring yeah. full of royals and oh know, absolutely same. oh god yes and 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 Definitely you know when, at this time when you were being laughed at you know you were saying things like this and now a lot of people are looking at you going he, he was actually spot on about this we've got the Epstein thing going on now have oh, you I looked into that at all talk about that for ages yeah oh yeah see um <laughs> You got Prince. What is it? Which Prince is it? Who is Prince, Prince Andrew? Prince Andrew. Andrew. There, yeah. There's good pictures. Uh, there's, um, there's so many elements to this, um, but in the end, they all come together. So, if I could just say this very quickly, and then then I can go into this mm. uh, this subject. The world is controlled by basically a spider's web. The, it, the spider's web is a brilliant symbol of it. You've got the spider at the center of the web, which is deep in the shadows. You, you won't see them in the public arena. And then the strands in the web immediately around the spider are the most exclusive secret societies. That's where the people are really know what the game is, is operating. What Illuminati you would well, say. Yeah, no, well, yeah, well, that's part that. of it. But, but, and um, I can talk about that forever as well. But uh, the, um, the, some of these secret societies, the real exclusive ones next to the spider, they don't even have names, so they're harder to track. And then you've got to join as well, Bennett, because you go, do you want to join the... And they go, you've got to say the name. We yeah, it's not, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they don't even do that at that level. Yeah. It's all, it's all um, you know, uh, real insider stuff. And then you come out 
still in the hidden, and then you hit your Freemasons and your uh, Knights of Malta, well, your build up Knights Templar. That. Yeah, well, I'm coming to them. Favorite Knight, Knight, you, you're, uh, you're at the secret societies. You're inner core of the Jesuit order. And when I say Freemasons and, and these people, I'm talking about the inner core because secret societies and indeed organizations within society in general are compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Most Freemasons in the world never get higher than the bottom three levels of degree in the, they're 30- just the ones who go for a pint and yeah a chat. In the 33 degrees of the yeah. scottish rite of freemasonry they don't know what's going on in the higher echelons you know they're, they, they're using the secrecy for a bit of business in the local community Get a they bit don't of a promotion at work or yeah, something. all that stuff yeah absolutely and then you come out um still in the in the in the in the hidden um, and then you meet what I call the cusp organizations. This is where the Bilderberg Group are, the Council on Foreign Relations in America that's driven American foreign policy since 1921 in so many ways. The Trilateral Commission, another American organization which um, is, is similar. Then you've got the Club of Rome, which was created in 1968 to specifically exploit environmental concerns to justify the transformation of society. Um, Are we talking about climate change? Yeah, though? that that that's one of the one of the mm-hmm. the um, uh, the sources of this mm-hmm. stuff c- came out of. Yeah, um, and and I, I said just as a quick aside, I said years ago, a long time ago, that the the the, the human caused climate change was a hoax. And people said to me, well, why would they hoax it? And I said, because they're going to use it as an excuse, problem, reaction, solution. In this case, no problem, reaction, solution to justify the control of the fine detail of people's lives from, from, yeah. with, with centralized control. Is that uh, control. like for tax on yeah. CO2 yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah, by, by dictating the fine detail of what you can and cannot do in your life mm-hmm. based on we must save the world. Now, out in America now, there's a thing called the Green New Deal, and you've got the, the uh, Extinction Rebellion organization in this country. What they are demanding is what I said they would demand as a solution to the, I say, manufactured problem. Anyway, that, that's another story. Um, and so these cusp organizations are there to take the agenda for the world from the spider through the secret societies. And these cusp organizations uh, gather together politicians, the bank bankers, intelligence people, journalists, uh, corporations, all these people. And they basically um, are the conduit, and there are many others of them as well, to take the spider agenda and to play it out into the public arena. So then you come through the cusp organizations and you hit the mainstream arena. You have governments, you have government agencies, you have banking systems, you have the big pharma, you have big biotech, big oil, all these things. You have Silicon Valley. Um, And in the arena of the scene, everything seems to be happening randomly. People are making decisions, and this is where you see the pixels, and then you see the patterns, and you see the picture. So, uh, basically, in the world of the scene, everything seems random and unconnected. But if you go to the spider level, the Silicon Valley corporations of Facebook and Google and YouTube and um, all these people, Amazon, the banking system, the big pharma cartel, governments, um, big biotech, big oil, Mm -hmm. they're all controlled by the same force and they're all working to the same 
end. And because of the fierce compartmentalization of knowledge, what the intelligence community called the need to know technique, people only letting people need to know what they need to know to make their contribution, but not see how it all fits together. A very, very few people can drive this, um, this web. And um, coming back to the subject that you, um, you raised, what I started to see very early on is that in this network of people in the upper echelons, what have become known as the, the 1%, um, there was a very common theme of pedophilia to a vastly greater ratio than you get in the general population, although there's more than people think in the general population, and also Satanism. Literally, human sacrificing, animal sacrificing Satanism. And you can chart the, these 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 bloodlines, if you like, back into ancient history. And you can see that all they're doing is doing things in secret that once upon a time they were doing in the open before it became unacceptable. Ancient rituals. Yeah, all that stuff. Um, it, it, it's really unbelievably bizarre, but then these people are. Weren't you one of the first people to sort of point the finger towards Jimmy Savile? Well, um, I'll tell you another story. We could talk forever, couldn't we? Go um, for it, man. I we um, actually might. I uh, was um, I was invited to the House of Lords some years ago, back in the nineties. Um, was this before? No, no, afterwards. But it oh. was only a very small group. Okay. I mean, you know, uh, most of the people in the House of Lords would say, "What's that nutter doing here?" But it was little group. But this was this was before the conspiracy side, uh, the writing. You no, know, it out. started. To sta- okay. It had started. Yeah, or oh, absolutely, it had started. Or we're probably talking about ninety six, mm-hmm. ninety seven, ninety seven, probably. And anyway, um, there's a person there who wasn't from the House of Lords. She was just another person who'd been invited. And she started saying some very interesting things about Princess Diana and her, you know, well, murder. And I saw, so I'm sorry, me, I'm all ears and I'm, I'm in there. <laughs> af- I'm in there afterwards. Mm. And I said, how do you know that? And she said, well, um, I'm a close friend of a close friend of who was a close friend of Diana. And she was, she was a close friend of Diana for nine years, and she was acknowledged as such by the mainstream media, by the way. And she said, I, I, I think my friend will talk to you. So about a week later, I, I'm meeting the two of them off the Isle of Wight Ferry. And uh, we, um, I sat down. I still got the tape at home. You know those old, old tapes, those cassette tapes? Yeah. I still got the interview um, on that at home. And um, she told me a lot of things, um, a lot of very weird things about the royal family, uh, which have all turned out to be true uh, uh, from other sources. But one of the things she told me was that um, Jimmy Savile was a paedophile and that he was operating in the inner circle of the British royal family and that Diana thought he was sleazy and horrible. Um, He was also um, even used as a go-between, I mean, this is this aging disc jockey, um, as a go-between in the marriage um, problems between Diana and Charles, because he was a very close friend of Charles. And this is the story. Savile was introduced into the British royal family, by his own words, this part, by Lord Mountbatten, of course, a, a big member of the royal family, in the 1960s. And he stayed in the inner circle of the British royal family, the inner bosom, all the way through, almost to the end of his life. Um, And and he was friends with Thatcher as well, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And and that that will be relevant in a minute and all. And so I've been writing for years 
that Lord Mountbatten was a paedophile. And I don't know whether you noticed, in the last, like, three weeks, a month, a book's come out quoting um, documents from the FBI in which they were also uh, uh, naming um, uh, sources uh, uh, for um, Mountbatten being a paedophile. How was he related to the royal family? Oh, how was he? He's very closely related. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, see, the, the, the royal family of Britain is German royal family. It's, yeah. re, it's really the house of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they changed the name to Windsor during the First World War because their family in, in, in Germany was, was at war with us, right? And there, <laughs> was, a, there was another German family, uh, royal exactly. family, connected to, to them called Battenberg. And they, during the First World War at the same time... Bloody good cake. They, they, they changed their name to Mountbatten, mm-hmm. hence Lord Mountbatten. Anyway, he, he was... He was a, an absolutely horrible piece of work was Mountbatten. But let's look, let's look at the, um, the themes here. A known paedophile, Lord Mountbatten, has introduced into the inner core of the British royal family a historic paedophile of historic proportions, and he stayed in the inner circle all the way through almost to his death, He's used as an inter- intermediary between Charles and Diana when their marriage was uh, um, in trouble. And um, it's known the police knew about Savile. They interviewed him. They knew what he was doing, but for some reason he wasn't nailed. And he wasn't nailed because what's not come out in the media is that he was a procurer of children for the rich and famous, and therefore his back was watched. Now, because if he goes down, they all yeah. Go down. Uh, and also, he was apparently very good at procuring children. He well, proc- he had children's hospitals on tap, didn't he? Because he, he wasn't he well, an owner of them or something. One of the other things I pointed out at the time of his death, uh, before it, all the all thing came out, uh, was that um, he was a necrophiliac. Um, he, 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 which is you like having sex with, sex dead, with bodies. dead bodies. Yeah. I mean, p- people who thought I was a bit weird, you know yeah. what I mean? We're talking about suddenly you almost seem like I'm so missionary sex. Yeah, <laughs> but this is the thing. This is the thing. That's why Jimmy Savile famously volunteered as a porter at Leeds General Hospital. It gave him access to the frickin' mortuary. Wow. These are the people. This this is the mentality we're talking about, right? So, um. The police knew about Savile all the way through these years. So the special branch of the police, the elite section that connects into royalty mm-hmm. protection, knew about Savile. Mm-hmm. British intelligence knew about Savile, clearly. And you cannot cough out of tune near the British royal family without these authorities know all about it. Yeah, And they, ha- they allowed... A historic scale paedophile and a procurer of children for the rich and famous to be in the inner sanctum of the British royal family all that time. And then when it came out, Charles said, they never told me. Oh, do leave off. And it's then, like if one of your mates is into some dodgy shit, you'll know about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean it's Don't try and tar me with that brush. No, but you yeah. should have known. <laughs> Don't joking. try and... Yeah. So, coming it's back to what you've just uh, brought up earlier, Epstein. Well, he, well, isn't he a procurer? Yes, he's yeah. a procurer of children for he the rich and isn't. He was the Jimmy Savile. He was the Jimmy Savile of America. Yeah. And, you know, 
after Jimmy Savile's career ended as a disc jockey and Jim will fix it and all that stuff. He was just a paedophile then. He still had a stream of houses, big cars, a Bentley with no uh, obvious means of income. Well, his income came from what he was doing. Um, and Epstein, I mean, the, the, the millions that he had, um, it. There's no real explanation about where it came from because it's the same story. Mm-hmm. You, you know, when you're doing that, you get the money uh, to do it. Mm-hmm. And so what, uh, when Epstein was connected to Prince Andrew in the British yeah. royal family. Beagles, I, I it, hear you've just lost your Pekira. Can, I, can it, I do you a deal? Can I step it, in? It's, it's all the same. So the, I've lost my knighthood as well, you know. When I started talking about this, they ain't got to give I'm me a knighthood now. I'm, um, I'm devastated. There's, there's one thing about um, Epstein. Uh, apparently, Prince Andrew was photographed in his house. That's right. And there's a white banister. Yeah. Uh, and a Sean mutual friend Atwood. of ours, Sean Atwood, went to the house with the camera crew and has recently got footage got the banister. inside the house, yeah. got the white banister, and he's like, look, there it is. He's banged to rights, Prince Andrew. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you had... Um, Do you know with some people, there's always, ironically, there's always something a bit... Prince Andrew is a bit one of them. There's something, I, not, you know, there's something I, not quite right. There's not many it? members of the royal family where I go, they look spot on. No. You, no, know? That's you true. know, often look at them and go, no. good looking person. To be fair, that was what's confused me about I, Meghan I, Markle. She was fantastic in suits. <laughs> she sort of ruined it since she got, you know, into it. <laughs> Prince Harry's one of the few. I'm like, yeah, I believe it. He's all right. Yeah, I've... Um, I've said a lot about the British royal family over the years. Uh, I've, I've gathered a lot of information about them. And I tell you what, if a fraction of it was seen by the mass of the British people, there'd be a revolution by the, by the morning and they'd mm. be out because they are absolutely despicable. Jeremy Corbyn. But, but what, what Epstein was running uh-huh. was a blackmail operation for Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, in league with the CIA. What they do, this is why some of these people that these young, young girls, as was who said they were abused and trafficked by Epstein have spoken um, openly about the fact that there were cameras all more over and these more places. Coming out. Yeah, there were cameras all over these things and audio and 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 I, I've been writing about this for like twenty five years. The way that they bring in politicians and other people they need to control so they make the decisions that suit this agenda and they get them they get them compromised um, with things like uh, sex with children. They make sure that the tapes are there. See, one of the place one of the the, uh, sources of children abused by Lord Mountbatten and Ted Heath, by the way, former prime minister. I named him as a paedophile and a Satanist in a book called The Biggest Secret, uh, seven years before he died, he was still an MP, the passage was read to him the week of publication, uh, uh, and he did nothing. And it took 17 years after that for Wiltshire Police to start an investigation into uh, what Heath was, um, w- was, was up to. But it, uh, the, the place that um, uh, uh, Heath and um, uh, Mountbatten um, uh, got children from um, was um, a uh, children's home in um, a child care home in Belfast uh, called Concora. And um, it came out that what British intelligence were doing was um, providing children at Concora to foreign dignitaries and people like that and anyone else they wanted to compromise. And they were filming it. And then once they've got the film, okay, um, what's your policy going to be? 
what the policy is, whatever you tell me it's going to be. That's how it works. So you have here British intelligence, not just here in many other areas, as CIA do it as well, Mossad do it all the time, um, literally setting out to compromise people so that they will make decisions that suit their um, agenda, which fits absolutely with, A, what Epstein was doing, but also the fact that British intelligence knew about Jimmy Savile in the inner circle of the British royal family and did nothing about it. You know this lady, um, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell? Mm. Her father was a Mossad agent, Bob Maxwell. Um, I, I interviewed Bob Maxwell once. He, he owned Oxford United Football Club at one time, and I was working on a, a, a program with the BBC at the time called Sports Night, long gone, bless it. Um, and I did this documentary on Oxford when, and, and him. He was a horrible, horrible man, and I didn't even know then the scale of it, but he, he was a horrible man. He, way he treated, he's talked to his staff at the Daily Mirror. I interviewed him at the Daily Mirror, which he, uh, which he owned. Um, he um, was a Mossad agent for a long time. Um, uh, uh, there's a, 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 a person I quote in the book called Victor Ostrovsky, and he was a long-time Mossad agent, a case officer with Mossad. And in 1990, he wrote a book um, exposing it all, and, and he wrote a second one. And in the second one, he describes the activities of Bob Maxwell, um, who was um, doing things for, for Mossad while posing as a businessman, and how when Maxwell's um, empire started to break down, you know, he, he went bankrupt and he pinched the pension fund, you remember, uh, uh, of the Mirror employees. Um, Mossad decided that he was, um, he was now a liability, and they killed him. Uh, Ostrovsky um, describes how they did it. It was on, on a boat, a boat called the Lady Ghislaine, um, and they, they did it with divers. Is that what you think happened Epstein, that they killed well, him off? Wh where I'm going with this is um, the, irony, the irony, of course, uh, after that is they've killed him and then they give him a hero's funeral on the Mount of Olives mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in Jerusalem, Maxwell. But his daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell, um, the daughter of a, a Mossad agent, is connected to Epstein big time. She was a procurer for him. Uh, it is alleged with enormous evidence. Um, and he was running a, a Mossad um, blackmail operation. Right. So you can see how it all kind of fits together. And what happened with Epstein? Because what they do is this, as with Savile. When you serve them, um, they'll watch your back. But there is a limit. So with Epstein, when it first came out, he was given this extraordinarily tame plea deal for something that would have, you know, paedophilia would have put him in jail for a very long time. He basically, uh, he had a, nothing. Uh, do you know, he was given a sentence on a plea deal which allowed him to leave the prison during the working day. Mm. And, uh, right? But, and good on him, these um, former young girls, now women, uh, wouldn't let it go. And more and more stuff came out. Mm -hmm. and, and he was rearrested. And then the plea deal came out. People started to realize about that, and they were outraged. So, so he's now becoming, like Maxwell became, he's becoming a liability. Because if this guy's going in court, 
what the hell is going to come out. Yeah, we all could go down. That's what yeah, so, so what do we have? We have a situation where um, he's, he's put into a cell in this very major secure operation in Manhattan. And then it's claimed that he's tried to commit suicide. He told his lawyer someone tried to kill him. And so because they said it was suicide, they put him on suicide watch. So there's no way he's going to have the opportunity to kill himself on suicide watch. So what they then did is they removed the suicide watch and they took away the prisoner in the cell with him. So that, that is the opposite of what they usually do on absolutely suicide watch. Absolutely the opposite. So this is not really suicide no. watch. It's just suicide watch for the media. And then, and then you've got the prison guards who's supposed to be looking after him who fell asleep. I mean, someone gave him a Mickey Finn or something, but they fell asleep. That, that's the story. But you still got a chance because there's two cameras pointing down the corridor and anyone going in and out, you'd see them. Oh, they don't work. Must just have like, been the same camera ops as uh, Pentagon had on yeah. 9-11. Yeah. Someone lost the tapes. And, and, and Princess Diana. I, in a book called The Biggest Secret, I, I go into the Diana... Oh, we need to do Diana next. It, We've got to touch on that. Uh, and c- between the Ritz Hotel and um, the Pont d'Alma Tunnel, there's 17 traffic cameras, including one, I've got a picture of it, looking down at the entrance to the tunnel as you go in. Mm. 17 cameras, none of them working in the period when she was... Um, when she was Imagine on her the way tickets. to her death. No, none of them working. And uh, there was, um, you know, one of these people so, that... So just, uh, sorry, but about the Epstein thing, though. Um, you're, you're leaning towards he was murdered then, yeah? Definitely murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there is another um, possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, it, you know, I only throw it out as, as, as a, a possibility. And, and some people are saying, well, just hold on a mm-hmm. second with whether he, mur- he was murdered. Um, Maybe they got him away somehow, yeah. right? Um, because um, they do do that. Yeah, you know, Sean Atwood I, I, recently come into the uh, hands of his black, black book. book. Did yeah, you say that's that? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he started ringing everyone. Like we're, we're talking, like Bill Clinton, Liz Hurley, like every celebrity. So, that, so in that black book, what exactly is that black? It's book? just phone numbers. There's no proof of anything that's gone on. But you're getting a scale of the level of celebrity and the level of like Influence high ups. And what Sean said was, it's the ones you don't know that are the most frightening it, of all it, of these. Exactly. And the other thing is, and a number of those names in that book, there's, there's multiple freaking numbers. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, and you're talking about people from all over the globe who are princes and yeah. the sultans. And so we're not fits perfectly with yeah. what I've been writing over the years that literally... I would go as far as to say this. The cement that holds this web together is pedophilia and Satanism. Yeah. This guy, Epstein was like Uber Eats for pedos, basically. Mm. Like, he delivered. It was crazy. Who are the good guys? <laughs> There's got to be good guys. Because what I'm always struck by is if these people want to silence anyone, it would be you. Why, why let you continue? Well, with, with me... Um, the way my life has gone in the last 30 years, in many ways, has been absolutely perfect because, of course, the enormous ridicule that I got right. um, for years in the early 1990s when, and, and onwards um, meant that when I started coming out with this stuff, I wouldn't have been seen as a threat right? because everyone thinks he's mad anyway. And in fact, if he's saying this has gone on, people will actually not believe it because he's saying it. There then came a period, and 9-11 was part of it, when there was a big shift. Turn, yeah. 
And people started to say, well, hold on a minute. What this bloke's saying is making sense. And it's certainly making sense of what's going on. And, and, and look at all the things he said in these earlier books that are happening. Uh, but by that time, I'm up and running. Because you became... I'm out uh, there. You became a bit of a lightning rod, I'd imagine, for these kind of things. Because if yeah. you're saying it, other people who have also been doubted or ridiculed are going, yeah. well, I can go and tell him things. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. Um, because some of the things that are going on, a lot of the things that are going on, are so absolutely fantastic. I mean, the, the greatest defense that this conspiracy has, and people say about people like me, you see conspiracies everywhere. I don't. Yeah. I see one conspiracy with right, multiple faces. When you, um, when you look at uh, the way that this, um, this whole um, uh, conspiracy works, it's, um, it's and, and you're willing to put it out there, uh, people who generally will not get a hearing anywhere mm. know they'll get a hearing from me mm. and so you're absolutely right you become a lightning rod once you start putting it out there people then say well th this guy's a vehicle for what i know getting out there so you do get a approach like that but of course you have to be very very careful mm. and i have um a a technique i've used which has served me very well i call it the back burner technique when um People have told me absolutely fantastic things. I mean, like, what? You, like, but you mean terrible things. Yeah, I, I, yeah. and also far out things. Uh, what I, I, I don't, A, dismiss them, unless through previous research I know them to be not true. And B, I don't accept them either. I put them on the back burner and I wait and I see what other information comes in relation to that subject. And then there comes a point. This is what I did with the paedophiles. I, I got so much information about this stuff um, in, um, in the 90s. Um, and eventually there comes a point where you cross a line. You've got so many stories telling you the same things about the same people from so many different sources who are not connected that you cross the line. And at that point you say, I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. um, and... It, it, what it's turned out to be true. Have you ever sort of, um, I'd imagine you've come into a few scenarios where you sort of fear for your life or sort of ever been worried? No. Never? You've never thought, I am coming out with so much, like you say, fantastical stuff that I'm, you know, the hotel I go to tonight. Right. You know? No, never. Um, and people say, do you have a bodyguard? Um, you, you know what a bodyguard is? He doesn't. Is? You know what a bodyguard is? A it, witness. It, it, it is an external acceptance Right. That other people have power over you. I don't accept that. That's why I don't have a bodyguard. I hey, don't, do. Well, you don't bloody need one. <laughs> size of you. Although if you, if you do need one, yeah. maybe me. Bloody good break. Just saying. Yeah. yeah. But I know what you're saying, though. You, but, you don't want to give them that power. No, I, I won't give them the power. Um, they, can't, they cannot stop me. You see, we are consciousness. Um, and, 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 and we can tap into expanded and expanded levels of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, that give us enormous power to do in enormous things, which gives us enormous levels of potential to make things happen. So how have you, have you do you meditate? Or no, no, I just, just live my life knowing that I have more power than they do. Um, and uh, you see, if you look at how this cabal works, it works on intimidation and it works, intimidation is another word of saying, getting people to give a shit, right? Mm. It's about persuading the public to give their power away to them. 
they give their power away at different levels to politicians, you know, do something instead of saying, what am I going to do about it? It's what they're going to do about it. Uh, and, and then they give their power away through consequences. Right. Like, what will this cabal do to me if I come out with this stuff? I mean, so many people have given me information, some of them well-known people, and they've said, look, I'll give, you, I'll give you it, mate, but for God's sake, don't say you got it for me. It's this fear. I write an enormous amount about the nature of reality and the nature of life and the nature of the eye. And um, we, this body is just a vehicle for a very transitory experience in a tiny band of frequencies that we call the world. And, um, and, and when it's over, the true I, consciousness, awareness, will leave and explore forever, forever somewhere else. So when you, 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 you see life through that infinite, on that infinite level, then this little transitory experience we call a human life, it takes on a very different, um, a very different perception. For instance... Um, well, they might kill you. Okay. So I'm not going to do what I know to be right because they might kill me. Okay. What does that mean? I'm going to leave this body at some point anyway. So I'm not going to do what I know to be right out of fear of leaving the body just a bit earlier than I normally would. No, I think I could handle that. I've, right. always, I've always liked that about you, that you sort of viewed life in terms of perspective and time that we're here uh the way i do that's the one thing i've always identified with you and i, I sort of wondered if you'd ever um maybe lost someone earlier in life that taught you that it, this is all temporary no um it's um i've always rejected religion and i've always rejected okay. this world is all there is life's a bitch and then you die science mm -hmm. um but uh, until i had my awakening shall we say in 1990 i never really explored you know the alternative and then a series of incredible paranormal experiences over a long period of time put this information in front of me um and um i'll tell, I tell you a, a, a quick story um when i was writing um alice in wonderland the world trade center disaster i was saying to people you know, if, if I'm going to get to another level of understanding of what the hell's going on, I'm going to have to get out there and see this reality in an, from another perspective. Uh, not in some dream where you wake up and you think, you know, was that real or was it a dream? But actually where I consciously see it. About the same time, I got an invite to go to Brazil, the Brazilian rainforest, 2003 this is, and... Um, and partake of something called ayahuasca, as mm. well as talking to a, to a group. It was over a week. And I could have taken this ayahuasca four times. It's a rainforest plant. I took it twice. I had the most extraordinary experience. Some people have bad experiences, by the way. Um, but uh, particularly on the second night, um, what, it, it tastes like licorice. And, and you, you take it, and then it takes about an hour to kick in. And what happens is um, when you close your eyes, you're in another reality. But when you open your eyes, you're back in this one. The thing is, though, that your eyes don't want to stay open. So they keep shutting. And what happened in, uh, in, in, in that five hours is as it kicked in, this female voice, as loud as mine is now, started to explain the nature of physical reality. 
and how it's all an illusion, a holographic, illusory physical illusion, and how it's just basically an experience, and we are consciousness, and the consciousness is eternal, it's indestructible, it just goes on. Um, anyway, and loads and loads and loads of other things. Um, and uh, I came back to Britain, and I started researching mainstream science and quantum physics. And I found that science had sussed what this voice had told me. But because they operate in disciplines instead of the whole, they were all in different parts. And when you put the parts together, mm -hmm. the, the evidence is already there in this world that this is a, 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 an illusion. And so it transformed my, well, it transformed everything. Because, you know, most people, and the, the system does this on purpose. I've written at length about this, how the system does it from cradle to grave. From, from cradle to grave, a human life is a download of perceptional programming. That's what it is. Um, the education system is simply downloading to um, the, the, the young population a perception of reality. And they test you if you've accepted that level of reality, nature of reality, by uh, exams. And then the media is pounding out the same version of reality. Mainstream science and mainstream medicine is pounding out the same uh, 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 reality. And as long as you keep paying your taxes and turning up yeah, for work. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's based on what I call the postage stamp consensus. This is a narrow band of information, sense of the possible, what is known as the normal. And if you stay on the normal, then you're normal. You're credible. You are. Anyone that steps off the postage stamp wanting to explore other areas, well, they're the mad people and the weird people and ridicule and dangerous and all that stuff, And which kind of happened to me. I, I stepped off the postage stamp in 1990-91, and I'm still running, you know, I'm, mm. I'm away from it, like. Um, and you start to, 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 to realize that what the system does, it doesn't want us to understand the true nature of the eye. Doesn't. Because... I talk from my own experience. Once you know the true nature of the I, what I am is consciousness. What I am is awareness. Forget the body, forget form. I am a state of being aware. And I can choose to be that aware. I'm just little me. I have no power. What can I do? Or we can choose to be as aware as we uh, want to be. That what the system wants us to do is to self-identify with the body. It wants, it wants us to self-identify the I with my name, my race, my sex uh, and sexuality, uh, and all these labels. Attachment, I feel. Yeah, these, what, they want us to be attached to all yeah, these little things. These labels, they're labels. Um, uh, and, and these um, labels that people self-identify with, when you say, who are you, they'll reel off their labels of the, this world labels. They're, 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 they are not who we are. They are what we are experiencing. And what's experiencing uh, uh, those uh, lives, those situations, those labels, is the true I, consciousness. Now, if you self-identify with the labels, and by the way, of course, the labels, and it's systematic, are getting subdivided and subdivided and subdivided. I mean, how long is that bloody list of letters going to get? 
where people have to are so obsessed with their self-identity they have to they have to list labels that that describe their self-identity and the minute their bloody, diet in their instagram bio yeah, at this point like, it's, it's unbelievable ridiculous. do you know I, 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 King. I, I quoted in one of the books um a, a an identity list of letters that are used by an american university you know of, of self-identities it goes on for freaking ever um so when you uh, self-identify with your label as opposed to that being your experience your sense of self and possibility contract to that label i call them i am ours i am our man i am our woman i am our this race or that race but when you self-identify with being the consciousness that's having the experience the consciousness that moves on at what we call death then your sense of self, your sense of power, your sense of potential absolutely explodes. And life becomes much more of an adventure. You chill more because you know it's just a temporary experience on, on the road of forever. Whereas, you know, if you self-identify with the labels, it's like a bloody race. I gotta, 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 gotta. Because take it too seriously. It's, the, it's the three score years and ten, isn't it? Do you know whether you remember this advert? Um, I, it obviously wasn't a good advert, but because I can't remember what it was for, but, but it was a brilliant concept. It starts with this baby being born at this end of the, the, the screen, and then it flies through the air like a missile. And as it's moving, it's getting older and older and older and older and older and then slams into a grave at the other end. And that's basically what uh, a human life is like in many ways. The idea, I mean, the number of times you meet people and they're in retirement and, and they look back at their career, gotta, 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 strive, strive, strive. And they go, at that point, they're coming to the end of their life. What was it all about? why did i do that what was the point mm. the trick is seeing that earlier before enough. you do it uh-huh. and it doesn't mean you just you know smoke weed and play the sitar oh that is that is very fun i've <laughs> yeah. tried that before you love playing <laughs> you go, the sitar it, it instead it, it opens up a great vista of possibility and and you start to realize this and this is how it works and when you talk about solutions this is the area of solutions Imagine um, Wi-Fi and a a computer. Um, You've got a Wi-Fi field, which is information in a radiation field, and it takes that form. The computer locks into that field, depending how it's encoded and where the mouse takes it, it, it locks into this part of the field or that part of the field or that part of the field. And depending what it locks into, it decodes that onto the screen. Mm. And, and, and people say, um, you said to, say to people, um, describe the Internet to me. They'd say, well, it's graphics and moving pictures and words on a screen. Yes, it is but only on the screen. Mm. That's the only place the internet exists in that form. Everywhere else, it's Wi-Fi radiation fields and electronic codes, etc. And the human, the human body is, it's the same principle. We have what I call cosmic Wi-Fi. A more technical way of describing it is the quantum field of possibility and probability. 
imagine it as a Wi-Fi field. This, as I've been calling it for decades, is a biological computer. And what if you uh, this Wi-Fi field? It's information in waveform. Now look look how the uh, five senses work. The five senses and the ears are classic with sound waves. It takes waveform information. It turns it into electrical information. It communicates it to the brain, and the brain decodes it into holographic digital information. And that holographic digital information is this world we experience as outside of us. It's not outside of us, it's in here. Just as the internet is inside the computer, we just observe it on the, the screen. So um, what you do when you're on a computer, you are making decisions through your perceptions of where you want to go on the internet. So you are, by where you go, dictating what goes on the screen. Our perceptions work exactly the same. Um, everything that we think, every thought, every emotional state is broadcast as a frequency. Everything's a frequency. Hate is a certain frequency. Love is a very different frequency. Uh, depression is one frequency. And, you know, when, when people are, are in states of depression and anxiety, what do they say? Oh, I feel so heavy today. Why? Because those frequencies are very low and slow and their energetic field starts to vibrate very slowly and it enters a, a much more dense state and we feel it as I'm feeling heavy today. And then one day we wake up, we've got, we're full of joy. And what do people say? Oh, I feel so light today because the, 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 the positive uh, emotions and thoughts of, of love, of joy are very uh, fast frequencies and therefore you feel light. You literally do. So our perceptions, whether we believe ourselves to be little me or infinite me, they are vastly different frequencies, bands of frequency. So if you're in a perception of I'm little me, I have no power, then you are broadcasting, operating on a very narrow band and low frequency band of perception. Mm -hmm. And that is interacting with the cosmic Wi-Fi, the quantum field of possibility and probability within that band. And you will create a feedback loop in which you will experience your own perceptions. Little me perception becomes little me life experience it's like those people who are constantly bemoaning bad luck yeah and it's like exactly no fucking wonder me yeah it's all you fucking talk about yeah uh uh, things were going or are going all right but you watch something you watch something happen okay there it is there you go there's the feedback loop (laughs) and so when you when you see yourself in in very limited label terms and, and in, in, especially in powerless terms, you are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy through this feedback loop where your perceptions are interacting with possibility and creating an, an experience of your uh, perceptions. When you break out of that and you, 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 you self-identify the I to be the consciousness that's having the experience, the very fact that you have expanded your self-identity from Ethel on the checkout to infinite consciousness having an experience as Ethel on the checkout, then that very expansion of self-identity creates an expansion of consciousness. 
And now you are um, interacting with the quantum field of possibility and probability, cosmic Wi-Fi, as I call it, in a much more expanded way and on a much more, much more high, high frequency. And that means that you are able to tap in to a vastly greater um, scale of possibility and probability and your life starts to change and i know this from my own life and i know it from talking to other people who've been through this process and you know it's not sitting cross-legged on a mountain you know just saying mantras it's not going on quests and fasts it's simply saying i am not my labels i am the consciousness having them infinite awareness having them they are my experiences they're not me and, and what happens is people notice, I did in 1990, 91, big time, suddenly amazing synchronicity starts to happen. Like what we would call bits of luck, that things just drop in your lap and things just start to happen. And you, you, you'll, you'll meet someone in a situation where you'd say, what's the statistical chances of this? And, and, it, and, and it becomes, a, and life becomes an adventure because amazing things are happening to you. Everything's just dropping in your lap. Um, uh, 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 whereas people think they have to strive for that. They chill out and realize that actually we're picking out of the cosmic internet through our perceptions, our experiences. We'd realize that instead of having to strive for them, we just attract them. And so as people in little me mode go through lives and there's no synchronicity and life's kind of everything's the same of course everything's the same because you're 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 accessing such a tiny band of possibility and probability your life's going to reflect that but suddenly it opens mm -hmm. and over the last 30 years i could not have written that book i could not have written any of the books especially the number i've written and i could not have done the things that i've done if i only worked on the five senses sitting down in a room trying to work it out this information has come to me in the most amazingly synchronistic way. It's like some force has been handing me puzzle pieces in a jigsaw puzzle in an order that makes it easiest to see where the pieces go. And the more pieces you put in, of course, the more you see the picture, the quicker you put the pieces in. And that's how it works. And, and this is not, you know, this uh, guy, Ike, um, uh, sitting cross-legged on the mountain going, you know, like this. Anybody can do this. Anybody can do this. It's just a choice. People watching this now, you can transform your life by transforming your self-identity and living it. Because one thing that happens when you start to expand your awareness is you realize that what people say about you and do about you is okay, matter. They'll do something else tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, when people have a go at us, you know, <coughs> the people that ridiculed me in the street 20, 30 years ago, they're now stopping me in the street wanting to talk seriously about this information. Um, you know, we must remember this. Whatever they're saying now, they'll say something else tomorrow. Mm. So don't let it affect you. And, and it doesn't affect you because you start to realize, hey, I am, I am a point of attention within an infinite state of consciousness, of which we're all points of attention of the same consciousness. And I'm, I, am, I am potentially, if I want to open myself to it, I am all that is, has been, and ever can be, which is what all possibility and all potential is. Everything has been, uh, is, and ever can be. And I'm 
I'm concerned about some prat of a troll in his bedroom hurling abuse at me on the internet. I'm infinite freaking awareness. But if you if you if you if you if you're little me identifying with your label, then that troll can take on a real much greater impact upon you. Do you, do you think you have to hit a certain <laughs> point though? Sometimes um, people call it rock bottom. When you get to that point in your head where it's like, this is the worst thing that can ever happen to me, or I'm in the worst place ever, and you realize, but I'm still alive. This isn't that bad. This is all like, you have to actually be put in that situation to realize how not serious it all is. Got a great line from a song Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. <laughs> well, when you've got, yeah, when, you, when you've Tell got. Me once nothing, you've lost everything, you're free it, to do anything. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's the phrase, isn't it? It, uh, set, it, it can set you free. Yeah. Because when, I've been there a few times myself. Yeah, well, when, you, when you've lost everything, mm-hmm. you've got nothing left to lose. So, uh, and, and if you, if you analyze people, especially people with lots of money, um, uh, they are imprisoned by fear of losing it. Madonna. Right. <laughs> fear, fear of losing it um, because they've got something to lose. And, and again, when you get into this self-identity of being a state of infinite awareness, just moving through reality, and this is just a temporary experience we're having, then what is there to freaking lose? Well, you whether you've got all money or whether end, you haven't, you? it's just an experience. You, you lose it all at the end, you kind of take it with you. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. But you gain it all, because once you leave the body, th- th- this reality is such a prison compared with what's beyond it. One thing we brought up earlier was the Princess Diana death. You alluded to the fact that you thought she was murdered. Yeah. Um, I mean, why do you think that? Well, she knew, she knew literally and symbolically where the bodies were buried for a start. What bodies? Um, well, when I, I, when I, what I mean is she knew the big secrets of the British royal family. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, she, the lady who was a friend of hers, close friend of hers for nine years, and like I say, acknowledges such in the media, um, was, was telling me uh, uh, the horrific way she was treated by the British royal family. And what, one of the people that Diana focused on uh, in terms of uh, the most evil was actually the Queen Mother. And I know that from other sources as well. And she, she was, her, her image, if you remember, was the, as the nation's grandmother. I didn't think she looked that friendly. No, she, no I, I absolutely agree with you. But, but, but that, that, was, that, was her, um, that was her image, wasn't it? The nation's yeah. grandmother. And uh, they, um, they brought her in because they wanted her genes. Um, not a Levi's, they wanted a jeans. Yeah, she was um, a good-looking woman and she was from high yeah. stand. Was uh, she? Who, Diana? No. Oh, sorry, I thought you meant the Queen Mother. I was <laughs> oh, like, no. oh, she was a right fit. Yeah, she was oh, a right yeah. looker, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I used to have fantasies about the Queen Mother. Yeah. 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 I um, mean, not different fancies. Yeah. But yeah. No, but so, so Diana was of high-standing class, wasn't she? Yeah, well, she was from the Spencer. Uh, I'm um, Philly. Yeah. The Spencer family, and they wanted her jeans. There's other reasons why they wanted her jeans, but that's a very deep story, which will keep us here for another four hours. But... Um, and, and so if you notice that once they got the genes, mm. that's she's gone. Back to Camilla now. When, when she talked to, yeah, exactly that. Because yeah. uh, he was with Camilla to, um, before her or something. Yeah, absolutely. All the way through. Yeah. I mean, she, Camilla she was, must be insulted in a way. She was yeah. only... She was only I mean, she was nowhere near as fit She as was only though. brought in to, uh, as part of the gene pool. Because uh, it's like I, I've, I've written at length in the books. These people are... 
they interbreed with each other because there's a certain genetic structure they want to uh, protect. And if you breed outside of that network, if you like, then it gets diluted very quickly. Harry? And this, this is where interbreeding, royalist breeding comes from. Oh, do you think Harry was not of... Well, he, he looked very much like... Um, the other fellow, didn't, Hewitt, he? didn't he? Uh, the uh, one who uh, was probably uh, shocking. I, I will only say that. But so in many ways, it doesn't matter who Harry goes with after that. No, well, I mean the, the 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 key bloodline is the the, the major bloodline, William, and, exactly. and, and what have you. That's the major. Harry bloodline. can do what he wants. Crack on with that fit yeah, race woman. Yeah, uh, but um, one way of putting it. Yeah, it, 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 this interbreeding said. is phenomenal, and you know, uh, it, it goes so far. Uh, this network, which is for reasons I explain in the books, and it's very explainable, um, is obsessed with its genetics and holding this genetics because I've just described when we were talking about reality, the, 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 the body decodes this reality and also uh, allows us to interact with other realities. DNA, for instance, is a receiver transmitter. It's an antenna. This is well known now, the cutting edge of science. If you have... Um, a certain genetics, then your receiver transmitter system operates differently. In, in, in their terms, they can access a wider band of frequency than humans in general can. In other words, they've got a much greater uh, scale of um, of what they can see. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, it's because of the way that their their particular genetic line inter interacts with reality. Um, differently to the main human race. And so, so the regular Joes don't have that. Imagine, imagine, imagine you've got a band of frequency, which we have. It's called visible light, uh, beyond which we can't see. Uh, just, as, just, as a, uh, uh, just a quick aside, you know, just to give you an idea of how illusory this, um, this world is, uh, according to mainstream science, um, the electromagnetic spectrum is 0.005% of what exists in the universe. And visible light, which is the only frequency band that we can see, is a smear of the 0.005%. We're basically blind. Everything beyond it, we can't see. Not because it's not there, but because we, can't, we, we are tuned to a certain channel, like a television channel, and we can't see beyond it. Well, th these, this genetic structure interacts with reality in a different way, which allows them to see further, further into the field. So, so that makes them far more aware. And that, that's one of the reasons. That how, how, have you, how have you come upon this information? 30 years of full-time research. I've talked to endless people mm -hmm. on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world. Because there's a lot of what you said today about 9-11. And, and I mean, I agree with a lot of what yeah. you said about 9-11. But for this, I think there's a lot of people at home going to be like, yeah. well, how? Well, why? Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? But the point is, um, if, 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 if I can see and understand more about reality and how it works than you can, I can manipulate to my heart's content. You know, they, and that's why they're at the top, they, is that what you're saying? They are far more aware of reality than we are. Um, well, most people are anyway. Does that mean they think they're above? Um, oh, absolutely. They, 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 they look on the rest of humanity like, 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 like cattle. Like, like well, I guess we kind right. of offer them. In yeah. a way. Jacob yeah. Rees-Mogg. Yeah. But so, why, why else would you sit on a golden throne while everyone else is? Yeah. Why, why, uh, but then why would you go to so many garden parties? <laughs> like uh, she, it goes to 
endless garden parties. You'd think for someone with a higher reality, you go, fuck the garden. Fuck yeah. the garden. Yeah, you yeah, go, but, fuck this. But, Do you know what I mean? It would be a waste of time. But this reality is not a higher reality. It's a more expanded reality in the sense of they're aware of more. But it doesn't mean it's a higher reality. Mm-hmm. If they were in a higher reality, a, a more expanded reality in terms of consciousness, they wouldn't do what they do. Can I ask you they that? They operate Can- in a very low band of frequency. Mm-hmm. And um, they uh, are uh, obsessed with the, um, the darker cult. This is why they're into Satanism and stuff like this. But does that mean they believe in God if they believe in Satan? Well, they, they don't really be- believe in, um, in, uh, in Satan. Uh, they have um, their, their gods, plural, which they worship. And if you go back to the ancient world, to your Egypts and your Babylons, and you look at their belief systems and the gods they worship, they're the same gods that these people worship today. I mean, some of the most famous people on earth, uh, the British royal family. I mean, you see them all the time going to church. Right. They're, not, they're not Christian. Um, and the, the, the Christian religion, in fact, is... Um, is a publicly acceptable version of the Babylonian satanic yeah. religion. It's, it, that's what happened when... Just repackaged, really. In, um, in Babylon, they worshipped a trinity of um, Nimrod, the father god, and uh, Tamos, the virgin-born son, and Queen Semiramis, the virgin mother. And when they... Um, uh, just a, an add to that, in the Babylonian belief system, when Nimrod died... He became the sun god Baal and mm. impregnated uh, Queen Semiramis with the rays of the sun, which allowed her to give a virgin birth to Tamos, the Babylonian version of Jesus. So when the Babylonians moved in on Rome and out of that came Christianity, they, um, it was the same religion, uh, basically. Uh, and instead of Nimrod, the father god, it was almighty father god. Yeah. You had Jesus instead yeah. of Tamus. And on the third per- per- part of the Trinity in Christianity, you have the, the Holy Spirit. Ghost or the Holy yeah. Spirit, uh, which is symbolized as a dove. And in Babylon, Semiramis was symbolized as a dove. Right. And what they did in the Christian religion was take all the attributes that the Babylonians gave to Queen Semiramis, which was queen of heaven, virgin mother, and they gave them to a, a, a character they called um, Mother Mary. Um, and, and so uh, the Christian religion is a publicly acceptable version of the Babylonian religion. So, you know, these people go to church, Christian churches. They're, they're not really, uh, they're not Christians at all. They are, they are um, occultists. Um, the Rothschilds are very, very um, uh, skilled occultists. And, uh, and the royal family, is all, it's all a cult. Um, and, and, and like I said earlier, you know, what is happening in the world compared with what people think is happening because of this perceptional programming from Cradle to Grave is so dramatically different that it's its biggest defense mechanism. Because you say to people, this is what's happening. Even if you produce the evidence, they'll go, nah, nah, it's mad, mate. And, and I'd say this to people, please don't confuse what is happening with your perception of what could be happening because what you believe is possible is not the limit of possibility it's only what you believe is mm-hmm. possible and what's possible is way beyond what going back, going back to diana is, is there any main reasons you feel like she was murdered 
Well, I, uh, one, of, one of the reasons was, uh, well, the key reasons was she was a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd provided the genes and, and she realized that. I mean, she t- when she talked um, uh, to uh, this uh, writer, Andrew Morton, for the, the, the book, mm-hmm. um, wh- which was basically quoting her. Uh, and what um, I was told by her friend of nine years was the same stuff, basically, plus some other stuff. Um, that they'd got her genes, but she was a feisty character and she she wanted some revenge here because she was absolutely sickened by the way she'd been treated. She'd realised that she was the Windsor's brood mare, I think um, uh, one phrase that um, the the friend used. And And uh, she was growing in popularity. Yeah. What what was annoying for the royal family, it seemed, is that they'd always been the thing and then all of a sudden she was the darling the media like she was doing all this charity work everyone loved her yeah exactly and she was becoming bigger than the royal family and and i I go back to it she knew their secrets and if you remember the interview on panorama um she obviously showed with that interview that that she was quite willing to reveal them yeah there Um, was three of us in this relationship yeah she wanted um she she, she wanted some well we call it revenge I don't know she wanted some 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 payback for yeah. the way they treated her and so she was a big problem and uh, and, and they they got rid of her um, but she was with Dodi uh, Dodi fired, fired yeah and there's rumours of her being pregnant as well no, I, don't, I, don't, I don't the one thing personally I don't buy that but. the one thing I I found to be like the biggest red flag mm-hmm. was after the accident how long it took them to get her into a hospital. Apparently, there was this whole yeah. time period where it's yeah. just unaccounted for for hours. And then they uh, didn't they embalm her body as well or something like Oh, weird. yeah. I mean, it, they, they killed her and they covered the evidence. We're yeah. just talking about, I mean, you know, you, you get a constant repeating of the same mm-hmm. techniques um, uh, as 9-11 was, with so much had happened in 9-11 was just what they did with the Oklahoma bombing in 1995, including the FBI turning up and taking all the cameras that showed what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And we've never seen them ever since. The usual techniques. But with... Um, with Diana, I mean, I, I went to Paris twice. I, I wrote about this at length in the, the Biggest Secret, which came out in 1998, and all the stuff from her friend is in the book, and some of it is seriously far out, but it's turned out to be true. Anyway, um, and uh, I walked the route, and um, where they were supposed to go, be going back to was Dodie's flat, which is on the Champs-Élysées here, near the Arc de Triomphe. Lovely. And, and here's the Ritz Hotel, and what you did, because I walked the route, like I say, twice, you come down from the Ritz Hotel, you go round the um, Place de la Concorde a little bit, you turn right and you go up the Champs-Élysées. What her car did that night was come all the way round, missed the turn to the Champs-Élysées, went round and went onto this road, a very fast road, which went through the Pont d'Alma tunnel, which is a very short tunnel, really. And so he's going at speed. And he's going further and further away from where they're supposed to be going. I mean, nothing makes sense that night at all. Uh, and like you, say, like you say, and I go into this in the, the Biggest Secret, the time it took for them to, to get there was ridiculous for something, if what they say is true, uh, a, a, a collapsed chest and um, internal bleeding needed urgent freaking surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but she never got it. And, and it was, it was a... It was a, it was a, a a blatant bloody murder and of course uh, again i mean just just think epstein um however when people are about to speak out or have yeah. to speak out 
However, however, the means they've got rid of Epstein, they've got rid of Epstein, who was a major, major problem for exposing the wider story. Mm-hmm. And they got rid of, of her, um, who was in danger of exposing the wider story. Another thing, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but you know these people that... Um, they, they, they go on this police frequencies and they listen to the police, um, you know, interactions Radio, yeah. and stuff. Well, that night, uh, not only did 17 traffic cameras not work, which is, it happens all the time. Tra- uh, cameras are there to keep surveillance on the population. But they're a problem when the cabal does its, its um, operations when there's cameras around. That's why the cameras are never working or they are um, confiscated, like with 9-11. And um, so when the Brazilian electrician, electrician was um, being shot seven times in the head after the 7-7 bombings by the police while they held him down and the guy who did it got promoted, the, the cameras weren't working. See, So this is, it's, 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 it's a common theme. But at the same time, they weren't working. There was one of these kind of blokes with the tuning into the police frequencies and he knew nothing that was going on. He, he got home before he realized anything had happened. But he's sitting on a on a, a, a bench near the Eiffel Tower, which is right across the river from the Pont d'Alma tunnel. And he said the police frequencies went down for half an hour. Nothing, silence. And that was the period that it happened. Uh, it's like, a, you know, I've said a few times here. If you look at dots, individual happenings, they look a certain way. But you start to connect them and you see the pattern and it's blatantly obvious what's happened. It's blatantly obvious she was murdered. When you say about the royal family being Satanist and stuff like that, like when when I hear that, I don't know about you, I think of like eyes wide shut, like you know, like it's. Always, I think of worse shit than that. Eyes yeah. wide shut seems relatively tame to what I imagine. I, I think the royal of eyes family wide shut, does. but like really worse, but a version of it. I imagine they're like not like doing having some sex, but they're more like murdering. Yeah. Well, no, the sex thing, big time. Yeah. Queen oh, loves yeah. it. But the uh, oh yeah, big time. Yeah, because the the, <laughs> the sexual energy is one of, is, is is it's it's a long story, but it, it, part of the occult uh, right. is is sexual energy. But um, what, what, it's, it's kind of interesting, eyes wide shut, because Stanley Kubrick was trying to tell us something. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, Stanley Kubrick's daughter is um, uh, is, is someone who's into this information. In oh, America. Do you know, what do you mean by that? Um, she, she, she's into the conspiracy information. Oh, really? You know what I mean? And, Kubrick um, is quite an interesting. The, one the, the weird thing about own. Kubrick, sorry to cut yeah, you off. Go on. There was rumours of Kubrick being the secret director behind the fake 9-11 moon landing. The moon landing, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, think, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, there's a, I've got a friend in America called Jay Weiner who's done two um, DVD documentaries. Yeah. He, he's, he's, he's been... Researching, people, people said if the moon landing was fake, they yeah. would have got. They, he's, it was Stanley. He's been researching Kubrick for a long time, yeah. and um, he he points out that what what was that? Um, and he, he does this with very very considerable detail. What was that film that uh, Kubrick was involved in? Um, a Space Odyssey. Odyssey High. Well, that, that was shot in the same period of the as, as the moon landings were being mm-hmm. orchestrated and happening. And uh, he shows in, in the shots of the moon landings um, Kubrick's filming techniques used in A Space Odyssey appear on the moon landing <laughs> shots. He, it's, it's brilliantly done. Because the reason they went for Kubrick 
was because at the time he was cutting, it wouldn't be today, of course, the techniques they have now, but he was cutting edge in terms of special effects. And what, what, what Jay does is he, he shows you um, scenes from the, um, the Kubrick film, A Space Odyssey, and then he shows you pictures of the moon landing shots on the moon and the same techniques. You can almost see the Rickin background. Anyway, it's fascinating. It's worth, worth, worth watching. But um, Kubrick um, was trying to get through Wise Wide Shut, which was about mind control and this uh, uh, elite occult Satanism. Because he was an insider. He knew what went on. It's ironic that he picked Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe, maybe, I maybe, bet there's a lot of symbolism. Oh, there. Well, yeah, well, there was a lot of symbolism. And, and um, yeah, that's another story. But he, um, he actually selected, you know, you know the, the manor house? Well, that was Mentmore Towers um, in England that um, was built by the Rothschilds. And he was quite obsessed with... Um, England in general, yeah. and the upper and the elites of England, which yeah, was yeah. quite interesting. I, 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 but it, it was it was presented in the in the movie as an it being an American, yeah. but it, that's what it was. And the way Kubrick worked is he he was very very skilled in symbolism, very skilled. So if you understand it, understood the symbolism, you could read what he was actually saying when it appeared to everyone else it was just a movie. And given the the scale that he used symbolism there's no way that he filmed at a, a house the Rothschilds built for that orgy and, stuff. and also for the no, ending of no the movie reason. is a huge like what does this really mean like yeah. you're, you're supposed to look deeper into it after the end of yeah. the movie as well well I, I, I spent from 1996 to about 2001 2002 deeply investigating both sides of the Atlantic mind control mind control techniques and how they work um and um there are some absolutely classic scenes you know you know um with um in in the um in the film um Cruz's wife Nicole Kidman yeah she kept having flashbacks of having sex with a a, a navy guy and all that stuff she, and they all keep having flashbacks that's classic mind control mm -hmm. a, a Kubrick absolutely was putting it on a public display but I don't know whether you know this that um, he died, of course, after the, very soon after that film was given to Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And what, what um, uh, you know, uh, Jay Winer was saying is that um, when, um, and other people have said this as well, that when uh, he gave them the original movie, um, the Warner Brothers executives were watching it in a you know, the theater. And, um, and when they walked out, they, they basically, this is this great director, is they just, they just ignored him. They just walked past him um, and insisted that 25 minutes of the movie was cut. Yeah. And according to Jay Weiner, because of his, when, when he agreed to fake the moon landing shots, he thought, well, I'm going to make sure that I get a deal here. And he uh, got a deal, it's according to Jay Weiner, that um, his movies could never be edited or censored again. So when they asked for 25 minutes to be taken out, he refused. And a few days later, not long later, he's dead. And they took 25 minutes out that have never been seen. And one of the reasons in the movie there's some strange cuts is because of what was taken out. So when you see what's in the movie and how far that goes, 
what the hell was in the 25 minutes that they wouldn't last to be shown. It's a dark movie. Isn't yeah. It? It's really and, dark. If you notice too, you had this massively famed director. It was his last movie because he died by the time it was out. Ironically, it came and went. Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, it came <laughs> and went. Eyes Wide Shut. What they do in mind control, so one of the great mind control techniques is, is use of words for confusion where they invert words. So you'd have something like eyes wide open. Now that's um, an obvious thing. Your eyes are wide open. But eyes wide shut is an inversion. In other words, it's impossible for you to have your eyes wide shut. And, and, and also what you've said about the occult is that uh, everything is inverted. The whole Everything's uh, inverted. Everything about it is that. Yeah. And the other thing about Eyes Wide Shut is it's, um, it's also a statement about much of the human race, which is people go around with their eyes wide shut. In fact, um, funny enough, you should say this. The, the opening introduction to, uh, to the trigger is called Eyes Wide Shut. And because and, and, the last two chapters at the end are called Eyes Wide Open 1 and 2. Um, and I, I, I talk about the Kubrick, the Kubrick uh, film and, and the name of the film, Eyes Wide Shut. And although you can't have your eyes wide shut, you can walk around with your eyes open and see nothing, mm. which is just as much which as Which is basically what he's saying, I guess. Yeah, that's what he's basically saying, yeah. eyes wide shut. And it, what he's saying is, look at it. This is what's happening. What about John Lennon? <laughs> I've never seen that coming. Do you mean the death of John Lennon? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in general, I'm, I, I find the Beatles are like quite an interesting... Well, John Lennon criticised the running of the world, didn't he, not long before yeah, he died? Yeah, John, John, John Lennon was, a, was a, a guy who had a... Um, see, this is, the, this is you know, the common theme. If you have a platform and you're saying things that they really don't want people to hear... Like Kubrick, maybe. Yeah, then, then you, 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 you're going to be uh, targeted... I mean, what was Diana but someone with a massive platform willing to say things they didn't want to hear? This is the common theme that you find with people. And Lenin was um, obviously challenging the, the military-industrial complex and all that stuff. He, pre- he preached like Diana. Like yeah, and he was, and he, he was and talking about the need to love each other. Yeah. Now, the last thing this cabal wants is the human race to love itself and love each other. It wants conflict. It wants division. Because yeah. when there's a few of you and you want to control the many, you have to divide and rule the many. You can't, you can't, you can't control a unified force. You can only control a divided force. So what they do is they um, create these fault lines and indeed all these subdivisions of self-identity are creating more and more fault lines now we're having transgender activists and bloody feminist activists having fights in the street mm-hmm. uh, all these divisions the, the more self-identity groups you have the more divisions potentially you have um and and so they um they don't want people coming together because you know when you're coming from my philosophy of life i'm saying we're all points of attention within one infinite state of awareness and so you are a state of awareness having an experience that is different to mine, but ultimately we, we, are the same, we are the same aspects of the same consciousness. And then when you, when you come to that level, hey, guys, we're all one. We're all one. So we're all expressions of each other. But what does that do? It removes the fault lines. When you get bullshit. people to focus on labels yeah. and identify with labels, your fault lines are 
infinite possibility of playing people off against each Especially other. Especially if you describe yeah. those uh, labels as beneficial labels and trick people into well, thinking the opposite. Yeah, and, yeah, and right. you, know, you, you, you want a label called Muslim, and you want a label called Jewish, you want a label called Christian, you want a label called atheist, you want a label called transgender, a label called, called gay, a label called, uh, a label called straight, and, and you've got endless uh, possibilities then to play them off against each other, and everyone's fighting each other, and they don't see that a very few people are, are actually holding yeah. the strings of everybody. I know, I know of another guy who tried ayahuasca uh and met, met dmt is basically what the compound is is, is that right at the heart of ayahuasca where yeah that's right people like joe rogan have m- talked about it a lot dorian yates uh a bodybuilder ironically took it and he said that um what came to him was that everyone everything is one and one is everything, everything is one yeah we're all this we're all connected even though you might see some dickhead on the street and think how can i be connected yeah, to this exactly. asshole exactly. you are yeah, you know what I mean. Because you, you've got your biological computer, yeah, and it is um, decoding reality via perceptions in a particular way, and you've got someone else in a different biological computer that is decoding reality in a different way, and so when we look at the world, mm-hmm. everyone seems to be apart from everyone else and 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 different. Um, but when you get to the level of consciousness beyond the body, then it's one flow of consciousness with different points of attention in it. And the, the other thing about that is that, you know, when we, when, when we talk about oneness, um, everything being one, it doesn't mean we're all the, we all have to be the bloody same. This oneness, this infinite state of consciousness is all possibility, all potential. When people talk about being something that, uh, you know, um, has been, is, and always uh, uh, will be. That's impossible. You know, you can't be all that is, has been, and ever can be. All that's describing is a state of all possibility and all potential. Mm. So to celebrate your uniqueness is to celebrate that you're part of this infinite possibility. What happens when you withdraw from that identity into a label is you stop being unique. Look at, I mean, you go around the world. And you get different situations, almost anywhere. It doesn't matter what the culture is. doesn't matter what the race is. And a certain situation will happen. And it's like pressing enter on a computer. You know how people are going to react. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it creates a sameness instead of celebrating uniqueness. And what is happening now with political correctness, don't start me, and, uh, and, and all this policing of language, policing of, of behavior, it's forcing people into a basically a blob where everyone's the same and there's no uniqueness left. And what that is doing is taking us out of a state of identity with the I, which is identifying with being all possibility, I can be anything, into being this blob. And it's being policed because the, the more you... Uh, the more you uh, become part of the herd, the more you're withdrawing from the true state of I, which is consciousness. You know, uh, if, you, if you look at the, the herd mentality, uh, it's, it, it's just everyone following everyone else. And, and that means whoever's the frickin' shepherd is running the show. And that's basically how this conspiracy works. Two things, you've got the herd of sheep or the flock of sheep, You've got the shepherd in front with, with the stick 
and the sheep are following him. And any sheep that want to break out of that, then they're sorted out with the sheepdog, which symbolizes fear. Mm-hmm. And that's how the human race is controlled. This is where fear of consequences, that's the fear of the sheepdog, mm-hmm. basically. And, you know, I, I stood there one day, a long, long time ago, and I watched this massive herd of sheep coming down this hill. There was a shepherd in front, and there was a sheepdog. And all these sheep were just following the one in front, and, you know, any that got out would sort it out by the sheep. I don't remember many did. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm, th- and I'm thinking, I'm looking at the human race walking past mm-hmm. me here, and I thought, well, hold on a minute. What, you know, there's the, there's the shepherd. I'm in control. I'm the authority. Whoa, whoa. And I'm the fear. Yeah. And I thought, what would happen if these sheep just stopped and said, hold on a minute. I'm not following this bloke anymore. I'm out of here. And the fear comes, row, row, row. oh, you know, have a nice day. And they go that way, and they go that way, and that way. In minutes, this shepherd authority would have lost complete freaking Bullshit. control. The sheepdog would have lost control because no one's reacting with fear anymore. And suddenly, the whole situation's changed. Uh, all the sheep are going off in, in their own directions they want to go in, and the, the, the control system's dead. That's all we have to do. Stop but, cooperating with our own enslavement and is, stop policing each other. But, but I remember a Tupac interview, ironically, when I was younger, watching it, and he goes, fear is stronger than love. And I didn't have a fucking clue what he was saying at the time. But like now I've gotten older, I'm like, I get, I get what you are on about now. But the special people that I've met in life are the ones who are the other way around, where love is stronger than fear. But most people, 99% of people, fear rules them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but, 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 but fear is not stronger than love. Um, in, in a lot of people it is because the average person is a selfish fucking prick yeah. in my experience anyway and I'm, I'm including me at, at times in that you know what I mean like we all were worried about our own self-survival yeah. like everyone's a self-preservationist at this point especially yeah. with social media that kind of plays into what David's saying though yeah. because people are sort of conditioned to be that way yeah, but I, you, what yeah. I'm saying is I feel like it's getting worse not better well, well I, I, I think, think it's true. getting better with some people i'm seeing a big awakening going on and with others i'm seeing it get worse mm. it's almost like a part of the road getting worse absolutely uh-huh. parting of the road i abs- absolutely agree yeah. with that but i mean but this h- thing called love um, what is it i mean we associate love with with overwhelmingly physical attraction and and for me the nearest thing that you can get to real love in 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 its universal sense is friendship um, we've so lost the meaning of love that we have to put words in front of it, like unconditional, to, to explain what we mean. Because if, if your love is only attraction, well, that will, that will probably burn out at some point. And what happens? The relationship ends. Because it's, it's not really based on unconditional love. Friendship is. Uh, there's a great line. A friend is the one that walks in the room when everyone else is walking out. Mm-hmm. where you, you, it doesn't mean you agree with the person and you don't even agree with what they've done, but you're there for them because your love is without condition. Mm-hmm. And this is the love that exists in the greater uh, uh, reality, the infinite reality beyond this manipulated realm that we experience. This, it's, it's, it's a love that without condition. 
Um, and that love is far more powerful than fear. What fear does, because we, we have the, the body, it's actually holographic, but the, the body is actually a, a, an electromagnetic field. Some people call it the auric field. And there are vortex points through this field, um, which are known in the East as uh, chakras, meaning wheels of light. And they're vortexes in the field. There are some um, photographic techniques that can photograph them now. And, and there's seven major ones through the human energetic field beyond this visible light spectrum that our eyes can see. Um, and the key, the key one is right here in the middle of the chest, and it's called the heart chakra in the East. Art vortex, you might call it. Now, this is where, from ancient times, the association between the heart and love came from not the physical heart i mean they they symbolize it as the physical heart don't they understandably but it's this when you're feeling love for someone you don't feel it here this vortex here relates to emotion that's why uh, we feel emotion in the belly that's why when we're nervous we get the shits that, that, that it is that that's the reason that, that, because of the way the the, the fear and anxiety yeah. affects this vortex from the gut. here which the gut yeah, yeah gut reaction that comes from here and um so this is 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 where we feel love and oh god my heart goes out and we feel compassion from here this is why and in most people the head is the arbiter of perception and it's the arbiter of action the head is a very very um limited state we call it the intellect people we worship the intellect the intellect is the village idiot compared with this this is innate intelligence this is uh, learned intelligence um, and when you open your heart, and, and what fear does is it shuts it down. You know, people talk about their heart aching and all that stuff. Fear shuts it down. Well, what is a selfish person? It's someone who's scared about how this is going to impact them and, yeah. and, and, and all it about sh- them. Shuts the that heart to down. me, what love is, is when someone can override that with putting someone else's needs yeah. above their own. And, and when you talk about when everyone else walks out of a room and they walk in... Yeah. It's for, there was recently on Twitter a suicide awareness day. Ironically, Twitter would be promoting that as Twitter is probably one of the worst places exactly. for mental health in the world. But, you know, it's talking about uh, if reach out to someone, tell someone if you're feeling down. And I'm like, you know what we should be giving out advice for? The people who are around those people, because they're the ones who need to fucking step up as Absolutely. well. They're the ones who need to walk into the room because no one else... Loneliness isn't cured by a text. Loneliness is about being there. Exactly. And putting their needs... While you're sitting there feeling like, I don't want to be around this person because they're going to bring me down because they're feeling down. Put their needs before yours. Do you know what I mean? That's what I feel like love is. Yeah, and, and this, 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 this love which you feel from here um, is, is not, you know, I love you, so do what you like to me. Mm-hmm. This, 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 is, this is the power. This is the power they want to shut down. They do it through fear, they do it through anxiety, and they do it through depression. When you open this up, that's where your power comes from. What I did, uh, and what else comes from here? Intuition. What is intuition? Intuition knows. And the brain thinks because it doesn't know, and thus it has to try to work it out. So look at the body language of people. Hold on, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I know, I just know. Look where the hands go. I know, I know. I just feel it. And this is where intuition comes from. 
And there came a point, maybe about 93, 94, where my way of researching flipped from looking at the information that was coming to me and concluding what was happening which was this talking working it out and it moved here and what has happened since that period right up to present day is I know what's happening here and then the information to support that follows so on 9-11, I knew what had happened. That's why I started researching it immediately, that it was a problem-reaction-solution. But as soon as you've seen the footage, as soon you of get it, a feeling? Soon of it, because of what I, what I knew before. But I knew it. And, and, and then the information has come ever since to support that. Um, and the reason is that this is our connection to the wider consciousness. This is why this is innate intelligence, because it's connected to those levels of awareness that do know. This is not, thus it uh, has to work it out. And there's a, um, an organization in America, it's called the HeartMath Institute. And it's been working um, for well, decades now on the power of this and how it influences reality. And there was... Um, the, 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 the lady, I think she still runs it. She was a therapist at one time. And she said that the te- one of the techniques she had when she was talking to a client, she'd put them in a chair and she'd say, tell me, your, tell me your problem from your head's point of view. Tell me what your head's saying about this problem. And she'd listen. And then she'd symbolically change chairs and she'd say, well, now tell me what your heart is saying about the problem. And this lady said she, it was like talking to two totally <laughs> different people yeah. because what they're doing uh, head to heart is actually literally connecting with another level of consciousness, which therefore has a completely different fix on the problem. And, and I, I can't stress enough, by the way, how right you are from a personal point of view, because I feel like my head is quite a negative place, but my heart is a very positive place. It's like absolutely. constant battle. That's why they want. That's this why the whole the, the society is structured is, is to shut this down. Mm. And when you open it, you don't just open it to what we call love. Mm. You open it to enormous amounts of insight, intuitive knowing that 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 you won't get if that is closed. And the other thing about love. You know, people think, oh, he's talking about love and he's a bloke. Are we doing the washing up next? You know, one of those things. (laughs) But this is actually the ultimate power because love is devoid of of that which controls us, fear. When your heart is open and you're coming from there, you do not feel fear. This never says... I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do, uh, the, the, the right thing. But what are the consequences? This doesn't do consequences. This, what are the consequences? Oh, my God, this. Oh, what are the consequences for me? This is going, I don't give a shit. To be fair, my dick doesn't really think you, that much. You know what I mean? I wish it would. Yeah. It, it would have kept me out of a lot <laughs> that, of trouble. <laughs> it's a completely different uh, interaction with reality. Uh, it just transforms your bloody life. Not only do you get massive insights into things that you wouldn't normally, but you chill out because you realize this is just a transitory experience. It's not everything, Mm -hmm. you know, I've only got a few questions left because I don't want to take up two. I know you've got other stuff to do. You got anything left? I was just going to say, if if that is, um, 
I completely agree with what you're saying. If that is uh, what you're working towards, what is the goal of uh, the cabal then? If if well, if yeah, they know this, well, why not work towards that? That's um, uh, that's a very good question, and it's a very very relevant question, especially for the the young people watching this. Mm. Um, there is an end game. It has been working towards it uh, for a long time. This has not been going on for five years or fifty years. But this, this goes back thousands of years. And uh, the the key to increasing human control has been increasing human centralization of power. So, for instance, um, there was a time when you, the human race um, was uh, made up of tribes. And the tribes um, decided what happened in the tribe. Then there came a big change when lots of tribes came together under what were called nations. And then a few people at the center of the nation were now dictating to all the former tribes that made up that nation. Through the European Union, we've gone to the next level, which is to bring the nations together under centralized control. And the idea eventually is to have a world government, world army, world central bank, world currency, cashless, um, which we're heading to so fast. Um, and, uh, and underpinning the, uh, that structure of centralized global control uh, is complete control of human perception. And it's happening in front of our eyes. Why would someone want that? If, if well, I mean, why, why does, why does, why does, why does Stalin want to control uh, uh, Russia with a rod of iron? Because they're freaking mad. Uh, they're psychopaths. And the 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 the, the first there's a thing uh, called the hair test. It's a list of traits, and if you have enough of them, you're a psychopath officially. And the top done. trait of a psychopath is lack of empathy. The inability to put themselves in the feelings uh, 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 and the situation they're making other people suffer. And when you remove empathy, all limits go. Right. We're back to 9-11. Only people with no empathy could possibly do that, knowing the consequences for those people that could start the second of the first world, second world wars. So uh, lack of empathy. But where they where this is. Sadly, those people are also very. um good at what they do they're very good yeah. they're very sick but intellectually they're, they're very very, very yeah. clever right. and they they study and this is what ai is doing you know they talk about surveillance and and all this technological surveillance all this ai stuff well it's not just surveillance all the things that the human race posts on the internet posts on social media, all that is being fed into um, AI, which is becoming enormously skilled at understanding the human psyche, mm. therefore able to manipulate the human psyche to control what? We're back to it, control perception. But the end game in terms of con- complete control of human perception is to connect the human brain to artificial intelligence and um, this is something I've been warning about now for so freaking long. And the Silicon Valley crazies are now openly talking about it. This guy, this guy at uh, Google is called a futurist called Ray Kurzweil. And there are others like him as well. And they're actually giving the year 2030 for when, which we're in 2019 as we speak, uh, for connecting the human brain to artificial intelligence. Um, and that at that point and i'm i'm now quoting or paraphrasing kurzweil 
Um, once that connection's made, he said, AI will do more and more and more of human thinking until human thinking as we currently know it will be basically negligible. Right. In other words, the human mind will become AI. And instead of manipulating human perception, human perception will become direct through um, AI. And this is how they've done it. There's a... Um, well, we're already kind of oh, on Oh, we way. are. Can, oh, I, yeah. can, I, can I use on the phone for a start? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I just want to give you a sequence because this right. will be very relevant to the people watching this. Um, you know, I talked about problem, reaction, solution. Mm. There's, another, there's another technique that is the bedfellow, the stable mate of problem, reaction, solution. I call it the totalitarian tiptoe. And what you do is you start Excellent. at A and you know you're going to Z. But if you go in too big a leap to Z, the change is such that people go, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening? So you go as, as big a leap as you can, but not so big that people see the pattern. So the totalitarian tiptoe to um, control by AI went like this. Stage one, get them addicted to technology that they hold. Your goal is to get in the body. So first of all, stage one, you get them addicted to technology they hold. So we had this explosion of uh, the smartphone era. And uh, even before that, you could say, yeah, I mean, even calculators, that kind of thing, yeah. Tamagotchis. Well, if you want technology that goes inside someone, I know a few <laughs> devices. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you bloody, you bloody would. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> believe me, then they're, they're not addicted in the same way. So that's interesting. So that's stage one. And that's achieved. Right. Um, vast, vast numbers of people are absolutely addicted to technology they hold. You go to stage two. They're holdables. Next stage, wearables. You're going in the body. So next stage, you get on the body. This is your Apple Watch, your Bluetooth, and all these things. Well, en endless this gadgets. Is, this is literally not an He's Apple Watch. watch so, endless yeah. gadgets that you, you wear. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, and yeah, what they're drawing. doing is conditioning normality. They're making these things normal. And I'll tell you something about these office assistants in a minute about that, too. Um, and and then uh, and and these uh, AI bloody duck Barbie dolls they're giving out for kids and stuff like that. So then what? you go to the next stage, small soldiers, which is inside the body, which mm -hmm. is internal chipping, which I've been saying was the plan since about 1992. Elon Musk is sort of big into. Oh, that, isn't don't he? talk to me about him. Not oh, a fan. No, 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 I really want to hear what you think about Elon, Elon Musk. Musk hey, the comes out and says that AI could be the end of the human race. <laughs> on that, he's right. And then he opens a freaking company called Neuralink to connect the human brain to computers. Yeah. I mean, talk me through that. And sort of Overton window sense of uh, the only um, the only uh, way uh, that they are going to connect everyone to AI, no matter where they are in the world, is by having the every inch of the planet covered with Wi-Fi, the cloud. This is what Kurzweil says, that the human brain is going to be connected to the cloud. So. The cloud has to be global. And they are putting thousands and thousands of satellites up in orbit. Uh, Musk, one of the major ones through his company, SpaceX, to beam Wi-Fi at the planet so no one can escape from it. And are, are you uh, of the belief that this 5G thing is something to worry Massively. About? 5G is, is ramping up this whole what they call smart grid. Do you know, notice how everything today is called smart? Mm -hmm. 
Everything, I mean, everything called smart is part of a smart grid, and part of that smart grid is connecting AI to the human brain. So everything is connected by a, uh, is controlled by AI, and whoever controls AI controls everything. And and from one central point, when this grid is up and running and it's it's being put into place more and more every day all over the world, whoever controls that central point controls not only uh, uh, you know everything uh, technologically controls the human mind. And it, see how fast things move. Um, I remember some books ago, not that long ago really. I was warning about the plan for something called the Internet of Things, where everything is connected to the Internet. Now, already billions of things are connected to the Internet. Everything's connected to AI and the Internet. The Internet, by the way, was made possible thanks to an organization called DARPA, which is the technological development arm of the Pentagon. And um, if I called DARPA evil, I would I would be fearful of... Um, of evil uh, suing me for defamation of character, to be honest. That's how bad it is, right? Um, and so the idea um, uh, is uh, if you, before you can make a physical connection to AI, and uh, people accept this, you've got to make a psychological connection. And what they're doing, because uh, it, it's all a psychological game, the few cannot control billions unless they control the psyche of the billions. All it would take for me, by the way, is just a good video game that I could just play whenever I really? like. When I'm on an airplane or whatever, I just go, like, it, I would be so easily tricked. Tri- really? Yeah, I feel, I I feel mean, the opposite. I, I, I'm me, the opposite. I'm not into technology at no, all. No, but me and him, yeah. I mean... We love Mario We're Kart. constantly playing games, yeah. listening to music. We're, we're fiends for this shit. You know I've got to say... I'm halfway there already. I, I think I... I think you'd be first in the queue. You, uh, everyone knows if they follow you on Instagram. Come on. Come on. Apple, you're all over it. You'd be one of the first in the queue lining up. Having said that, I, I love Marshall McLuhan, so I won't go any further. But I, I think the I would draw the line at putting something inside my. What body. if it was just clipped onto the? No, yeah. just to start no. off with. No, the, 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 all of a sudden, the idea is to get absolutely in the brain and not. But not they'll, they'll probably start with something like yeah. you know, you just wear it well, on your, well, on your was, wrist. I, I was I was speaking in Sweden last year. Already at that point, more now, three thousand people in Sweden have been microchipped. Yeah, by their own. Agreement. Mainly men, probably. Right? Yeah. And I know, I've met some Swedish women before, and I just they wouldn't put up with that. And uh, <laughs> one of the reasons is so doors will open without them pushing them, you know, the lazy bastards. I mean, what's the point of that? Yeah. Anyway, because this, this is how the... To be fair, he would love... This is how the, the obsession with but technology... That, that's in the movies years ago, isn't it, where they, yeah. they hold their hand up or whatever, and like even Demolition Man in the 90s, for Christ's sake. You know? But there is... Then there are, thing, there are things that go the other way, like Doctor Who is the Cybermen, those kind of things, sort of warning against that. Yeah, you've got iRobot, those kind of things. But what you've just mentioned is, um, uh, and I'll come to the, uh, the office assistants in a minute, you know, these echoes and stuff. There's reason mm. for them. Um, uh, it's not good for humanity at all. But there's something, um, it's, a, it's a very, very important um, psychological manipulation technique. It's called preemptive programming. Mm. Okay, this is how it works. You are here, you want to go there. That society is so dramatically different to this one, you're going to you're going to face a response against it. You want to do what? So what you do is you fill the movies and the programs Mm -hmm. with storylines and scenes and portrayals of that world. And so what you're doing, and, and, and you look at the movies that have come out in the last like 10, 15, 20 years about this whole world of, um, uh, 
technology yeah. and robots and AI and all Iron that stuff. Man. Any, but, anything with and, Will uh, Smith in, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, and uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, the, the one with uh, Tom Cruise in. Oh, yeah, yeah, Minority Report. Yeah, Minority oh, Report, yeah. Mission Impossible 2 was excellent. Yes, and, and, and what you're doing is you're, pre- you're, you're um, preparing the subconscious, particularly the subconscious, conscious as well, to become familiar with the world you want to take people into. Over so, the window. So as the world is brought in for real, that familiarity is going to lessen the resistance to it because there's a familiarity you know about it. what I think they're going to do with David? If they make it easier to get laid for men, that is the, the Tinder via like... You know, microchip. That's do you, it. Do you know the worry is, David? You're laughing. He's totally sad. No, I'm, I'm telling yeah. you now. If there's one way you'll get men to go along with this, yeah. is if you yeah. make it easier to get women, guaranteed. That's, you, and I, I shouldn't be saying this because I'm giving them ideas. Yeah, but I've I said it. Now. To be fair, Brian. I, to be fair, if you've had the idea, I think they've had the idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, can just, I just, just, just very quickly, just to, to finish this point? Yeah. You've got to get people familiar with. AI and interacting with it yeah. as if it's human. Part of life, isn't it? As oh. if it's human. And that's what the office assistants are for. Some mm. people have one in every bloody room I've come across. Yeah. They're interacting with them as if the AI. Is that like Alexa and stuff? Yeah, like all that, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. As, if the ex- as if the AI voice is. Um, is human and, and 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 then you've got the the Barbie dolls and yeah. these other. Remember toys. Rocky? He had the the little thing that took the floor up for him. Sylvester Stallone and Rocky? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, I that, mean, they're that, everywhere We're now. talking like early 90s, yeah, and even it was in the movies then. Do you, do you know when you interact, do you interact with any of these uh, things? Have you actually no, sort of, I've got any not dabbled at all? No, not at all. Um, does it, why? Because it scares you? or be, No, because, because, because I, 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 I don't, I don't want them. I don't need them. Mm. So, you see, the thing is that when people become addicted to something like technology, mm. they think they need it, yeah. but they don't necessarily need it. I mean, I, I, I don't carry a smartphone. Um, I have one at home which comes out about once every six months it's a 3G one mm. um, when I have to be somewhere and contacted and there's no way they're contacting me and, and what I say is okay uh, I'll call you from a landline and I find a landline I, that's as much as I use it maybe three or four times a year for you know one small amount of times apart from that I don't use that kind of technology I think it's healthier yeah but what it's doing mm-hmm. It's, it's creating, especially with the kids and these AI-connected Barbie dolls and stuff, it's making them familiar with AI to the point where they perceive it as human. And once they've got that uh, acceptance and that interaction, then when they move into connected to here, you, again, you're going to have far less resistance mm-hmm. because the, it's not the, oh, my God, kind of reaction yeah, there's no shock there. it's, it's no shock it it, it's normal. become part of life by yeah. then and that's why they're targeting the kids now because they are going to be the adults 2030 when they really want this to come in full-blown make life so, easier for us as if I, it's a good thing i've do, got two questions left can I, can I just to finish up on that then so the people in the cabal would they be connected to the ai or would uh, like is their goal to get everyone connected as one do you, or, remember, or, do you remember the Riddler in Batman where he sort of stuck it on his head? And sometimes you're trying to make a good point. And the, 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 you know the, I mean? Yeah, I get what you're saying. The, do you remember that? Yeah. Jim Carrey. Yeah, that so was probably had, one of like, the worst Batman. The TV and it was like mind control and it would all go to their head. It was That's the, what this reminds me it of. It was the worst Batman. But the, I know what you're going to say, yeah. The inner core will not be connected to it. So they'll be almost they'll outside be, of they'll it. They'll be controlling it. Right. Okay. 
So uh, their goal is not for good. And what, what is the point of controlling it then? Is that to have a workforce? What it, because once you've got it, well, is it a toy? What it's is it? Another, it's, it, it, that's another question that um, I've answered in the books, but it's, it's another long answer. Okay, Which we should take, go for a drink after yeah. this, David. Yeah, I really like. Well, it. I'd love to do another one after this, actually, because sure. I, I found you fascinating. Um, so, there's only two questions I've got left. Uh, one would be, how old are you again, David? Sixty-seven. Right, six-seven years old. Me, I, I often think um, I've got life sewn up. I, I, I'm at a point now in my life where like, I, I've got a good beat on things, and then I realise a year later I had no fucking clue a year ago. And I was just wondering, what point of your life after everything you've been through? Did you experience the uh, the biggest growth of your life, where you felt like you learned most about life and yourself and everything? Well, like uh, it's been an ongoing thing. Um, Is there you, any what, that stands out? Well, the, the thing that stands out was the mass ridicule mm. because that opened the door. Mm. You see, um, some of the things I've written and talked about, uh, which which at the time of the ridicule I didn't know I was mm. going to be writing and talking about. Anyone who is, has any concern about what people think of them is never going to write and talk about them. Yeah. Because people were saying to me, when you talked about this, did you think that you get ridiculed? And you thought, I, I think, do you know I'd work that out? <laughs> right? You know what I mean? This um, is really going to piss them off. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'd work that out. Yeah. If I say that, I'm going to get ridiculed. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I'd work that out. But the point is, because of that clearing out of fear of what other people think, you say it anyway. And the, what you find in life is... You can follow the herd by staying within the norms mm -hmm. or you can go on your own path. And, and if, that, if your own path has validity, the world starts coming towards you mm -hmm. instead of you following the world. Um, and uh, interest in my work has absolutely exploded mm -hmm. in the last few years. Exploded. Yeah, you, you get millions of views on YouTube. Uh, and, and, of course... You know, I'm shadow banned like crazy as well through um, algorithms, so it doesn't go out as much well, as... I think it, the thing with you, it, I mean, this will make zero money. That's what the YouTube will do. They'll make sure there's no money on this. It'll be... So if everyone should appreciate it even more for that. So if that reason, go <laughs> and buy the book. Yeah. Am I right? Um, yeah. We're demonetized like crazy. Um, yeah. And my last question then would be, how would you like to be remembered? Kunkelis. I like that. Because I will be exploring forever, forever by then. Mate, that is one of the best <laughs> answers we've ever had to that question. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope everyone's oh, enjoyed been, it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Honestly, really a uh, real pleasure, you. mate. I'll, 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 it's a big table, David. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> Cheers, um, so, yeah, to everyone who wants to uh, check the book out, we will put the link in the description okay. below. Yeah, there's um, other book. I think it's worth saying this isn't his first. Definitely uh, not. There's it, other books. And it was his last. He's got a YouTube channel of his own, haven't yep. you? Yep. And, well, um, um, just for anyone who is interested in sort of getting into David Icke, where would you start book-wise? I'd start with that one. Brilliant. Champion. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you later. Cheers, David. Cheers, mate. Really interesting. I love that. Thanks very much. That was great. I loved it, yeah.